This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. And this is Blake begin again soon. <laughs> it's, and it's time we even we only had to begin again once. And it's time to <laughs> release the Kraken. Blake Simmons, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How about yourself, sir? Good. It's been three and a half years since I've seen you in person. I well, I think it's more like four and a half, but who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> how are you doing? Are you, you By the look of your kitchen, it seems like you're in the United States. I am in the United States because my kitchen doesn't travel very well. Uh-huh. How, long, how much longer are you going to have that kitchen before you're not allowed to go into it anymore? Um, we're just uh, getting the final bids, and hopefully we'll be moving out in uh, about three weeks. And that'll be that. If anyone's uh, seen the 70s UFO space house uh, that offended all the neighbors and all that stuff, that's what uh, that's what Blake's going for. So Yeah. Well, and, and with the meteoric uh, Christmas balls coming oh, down. Like oh, the, of course. Of course, yeah. of course. And so you have an adventure, but three months of the Days Inn coming your way, which is like yes. a year at the Days Inn? Yeah, that's uh well, it's more like the roadway in. <laughs> Great, down in the down in the tenderloin. It'll be a fantastic uh, SRO experience when we get our house. We get your shots. Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, trust me, we're getting booster titers for everyone. Checked. Everybody has to be chained to each other, you know, and, so... and, and chained chained to the radiator at the roadway yeah. in. That's terrible. Yeah. I think that was a movie, right, with Christina Ricci. Oh no! I think I'm more like Unbreakable. With, oh, that's uh, right. Uh, yeah, even better. I still haven't. I still haven't seen uh, uh, Spinal or well, what what was it called? Was it Split or Glass. Glass yet? Either of those things. I, I yeah, I, I'm so woefully behind. I saw Split at least, but Glass is always on the to do list. But I was yeah. not interested in Split until it had been discussed 17 times and completely ruined for me. At which point I decided, huh, I guess I should watch it. But you know. It's been real, yeah. so <laughs> I I can go get McAvoyed, but otherwise, yeah, oh, oh McAvoyed. Well, no, don't worry. There's always Dark Phoenix to get macked out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. You know, I still hold hope, but but here, hold on. So what we're gonna do is our sucking the monkey segment, and for those of you who haven't heard this podcast before, or it's been a little while, that's where we discuss the imbibements, or in some cases, the lack of imbibements, depending on someone's uh, microbiological health. What are you having tonight? I'm having a delicious Sauvignon Blanc from uh, the land of Kiwis. The land of Kiwis. So, uh, uh, and is it a uh, is it a is it a vineyard you know or? Uh, To be honest with you, it's something that came after uh, (laughs) so long story made longer. Uh, We had a little event where there was some excess hooch left over, and so Uh there's some bottles of wine left over, and uh, I'm drinking one of those. So awesome. Uh, okay, so I'm having a delicious rum and coke. I'm having it with everyone's favorite sponsor, non-sponsor, Kraken Rum, and, uh, and Kraken. Co- <laughs> so I have that ready for me there. All right, good. So, uh, uh, so the Red Sky Roundup, Blake. Mm-hmm. There are so many news items. There's been about uh, three thousand three hundred and thirty-three news items since we. Uh, since we last spoke, and what we started doing a episode or two ago is just sort of randomizing because we can't, you know, even yeah. if we did a whole episode, we wouldn't hit them all and they expire fast. And so I'm going to roll 
and then I'll tell you what I find, and then you tell me what you think about it. Sound good? Okay. Sounds All right. good. All right, here we go. Uh, okay. So, the John Wick trailer. Did you see that last one? I did. What did you think? I thought they're going to, as I expected, they're going to end with a really big bang. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, uh, like it, it was... It was looking a lot more back to the original John Wick, a lot more minimalist. Yeah, uh, which plus horses, of, though. Yeah, plus horses, and and I kind of like the the whole straggly, long haired, greasy Nick Cage crossover John Wick appearance. It's a it's, it's <laughs> nice, <It's> nice. <clears throat> I think my favorite part is when he's donkey punching motorcyclists. I mean, it, it's not really a donkey punch, but you know, it's a, <laughs> it's the ultra violent equivalent of a donkey punch. <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I was always my favorite was the the rain scenes, uh-huh. right? Oh, and sure. I'm always a big fan of you know, it's a fire, right? <laughs> exactly. Or or uh, what was it? Um, the one uh, we always think about on this podcast, but we don't know the name. With uh, uh, it, samurai uh, battles in Tokyo, like the Michael Douglas film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black rain, black rain, <laughs> black rain, uh-huh. black rain. Yeah, I will just think back to that. And <laughs> it's pretty recursive when we have podcasts about having podcasts about trying to remember the name Black Rain, but there you go. Or we men of a certain age. So I'm excited about it. Uh, uh, our friend, uh, Deeply Dapper Chris, uh, he, he has never liked John Wick on a good day. And I don't think he's particularly enthused about the third one, but we're prepared to prove him wrong. Uh, yes. At, in detail but he's never, when that comes out. But he's never watched John Wick 1 and 2, right? So no, he did, I think. I think I'm going to watch John Wick 1. I don't yeah. know. Oh, okay. Well, so, uh, yeah, I'm stoked about it. Uh, I, you know, the only... Mm, so, the only thing about it is that they built that whole mythology about his Assassin's Guild and all their rules and everything else, largely so that they would give uh, Swearingen a place to scenery chew with a lot of, uh, um, I, uh, you know, Baroque columns and everything. And, you know... I, I my favorite is when he's just out in the world and he's everybody's out to get him and those those are the best parts of the second one for me, but the whole thing about being in your safe safe place and then violation and all that, you know. The continental. The continental, yes. I liked it in concept, but it was it, I thought it was going to be. Um, I think that they overused it maybe to the point where I was like, I'm getting really tired of him being in the continental. Let's put it that way. Well, I want to blow it up. Uh, but, but the thing that I liked was the continuity about the dog, mm-hmm. right? Sure. The, in addition to the, the vendetta against uh, you know, the, the, his wife and the blowing up of the house and all that, but the, the dog and his car, he's always got to do the car thing. So it's nice to see that he's moving over from the car to equestrian uh, <laughs> transport uh, mode. Yeah, you know, because I haven't seen many uh, current Hitman movies with a horse. So, <laughs> and yet, <laughs> and yet, after that trailer came out, and right around the time, so after, around that trailer when this came out, the Hellboy, the second Hellboy trailer came out, which was okay, or the or whatever the, that amount was, and then recently they released the latest one, which is the first Hellboy trailer that starts to feel closer to what it's supposed to be, and he's on a horse. <laughs> so I was like, sweet yes. two in one year. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I will say about the Continental and that plot device in the second one was that I liked that the series started with these guys violating the rules coming after him. And in the second one, he breaks, he does this cardinal sin of doing a hit in the forbidden place. And so the entire assassin's world is after him. 
So the irony isn't yes. lost on you when you're watching it that, you know, <laughs> what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander. No, it never is. It never is. Oh, Sheila. All right, next. Sheila. Next, next. Okay. okay, so that was some John Wickery. Uh, I'm rolling a thing. Okay, all right, let's talk about the uh, dog's lunch that is the current state of the DC superhero movies. <laughs> this item in my news list has just gone longer and longer since we last talked. So, <clears throat> first they said there'll be no just, more... Hold on, hold, yeah. hold on, I just got to say, you know, as much of a dog's lunch as it is, I'm still just blown away by the box office success of Aquaman. Right? I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, from what I heard, okay. yeah. You saw it. Because, yeah, oh, yeah, and it, <laughs> most dogs wouldn't eat that. It was... <laughs> <laughs> so, despite all their uh, desperate moves to prove everyone wrong that they can, they can you know, do anything but make a bad movie, um, I'm just still blown away that that many people paid to go see it. It's just it's stunning. But coming from the outsider's perspective in the sense that I haven't seen it yet, uh, yeah. the, <clears throat> my, my scent, what people told me coming out of it was varying degrees of, uh, but at least it was a fun one. Would you say that's true? Yes, it was a okay. fun one, provided you really like Jason Momoa saying, you know, things like... Acting like himself, right? Yeah, let's, let's go, dude. Let's throw some axes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From this perspective, though, is for, you know, having this movie come and go through the theaters and having not seen it yet, I thought it was pretty hilarious when they announced The Trench as a sequel. Like, I know. Where is DC going, man? They they took something like something as promising as Suicide Squad, and then and then uh, course course failed by inserting all the eyeball guys and made it made it make no sense. And here's and here's another chance where you know, okay, there's a lot of places they could go with Aquaman. And what do they do? They go, we're going to do a spinoff of the Trench Creatures. I mean... Yeah. Well, I mean, come on. All right. Well, okay. So the first news item was... This, I, I took these down in the order in which they sort of fell apart. But the first one was, hey, no more Joker. No more Jared Leto Jokers. Yes. <clears throat> or, unless there might be one. But there probably isn't one. And in fact, there isn't one. And I wondered what you thought about the idea of no more Jared Leto Jokers. Uh, well, it depends on what they go to, right? Sure. Um, I think I think uh, he burned a lot of bridges with how he came out after the movie, right? True. And so that uh, that creates a lot of. Um, you can understand why they made that pool, right? But if but if he's right, if he's tr- if he's telling the truth that there was a you know like an hour of footage that they left on the floor that they asked him to go nuts and they filmed him and then they only. They cherry picked a few things, and there you go. He's his storyline and his appearances and and his role in the narrative of Suicide Squad is so disjointed that it's easy to imagine that there was a version of the story that was a lot heavier with him pulling it all yeah. together in the third act. And I like yeah. to imagine a version because I want to like that movie. I just don't like the the bug guys and the fact that nothing happens. But right. I like this idea that there's a version of that movie that had a lot of Joker in it. And I'm still one of the apologists who thinks he did a Kind of like I don't mind Jesse uh, as Lex Luthor the way everyone does. It's just he's the son of Luthor or something, right? I don't. <laughs> I I was okay. I really like Jared Leto. I like him going all out. People complained about him in Blade Runner. We love that. Yeah, I'm okay I with don't... his Joker as yeah. a type of Joker. Yeah. He was never gonna. I, I, yeah. 
No, no I'm, I mean, he's not. He's never going to be Heath Ledger. He's not going to be right. Jack Nicholson, right? right? It's just, come on, never going to be that. But I mean, he's not playing that type of Joker. And as, and if you can set that aside and say this version is this sort of modern take on it, yeah, I think he did a fine job. I wanted to see more of him. I think I think he did over the edge, crazy, you know, horseshit, like gangster thought, Joker, gangster yeah. Joker with the, you know, the shoulder holsters and all the crap laid out around him and the purple Lambo and all that stuff. I mean, I wanted to see more of that extravagance. So yeah. I was a little disappointed that they they kind of confirmed that he was not coming back. If that's true, because yeah, you never know. But I, I, I'm I'm disappointed too. But it, it depends on who they're going to bring next, right? Yeah, I mean, right. as long as they don't bring Ed Asner in the crossover from Doom Patrol, that could happen. No, that can never happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the um, because that was a DC news that I that piqued my attention on the last week that. Ed Asner is going to guest star Doom Patrol. I'm like, wow. That's getting, that looked terrible to me too. And that's getting some pretty favorable reviews from people who watch DC TV shows. Saying that it's, it just, Doom Patrol, when you don't have the narrow segment of the scripts or, uh, you know, the stories in the comics that were really as edgy as it wanted to be, Mm -hmm. it just reads to me as, I wish I was, you know. I wish I was a Vertigo comic. Well, I guess it was, right? Was it a Vertigo comic? Well, it certainly wants to be in any event. It certainly wants to be. Yeah. Yes. And I and so all of the development photos and the pre-production stuff and then even the teasers in the the you know, the sort of those upfront photos, they it does not look good. No, it does I not. I do look- not like the choices they made, especially Brand- Brandon Fraser in the giant robot <laughs> costume and he's just all padded. He looks like a bad cosplay to me. And and yet, when I read some of the things about the first uh, stories, it's a lot more fa- it's a lot more favorable than I thought it would be. But well, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm I, I'm trying to maintain an open mind. So Ed, I'm, I'm probably not going to see that. I mean, Ed no. Asner. I'll watch Ed Asner just to see Ed Asner, right? Yeah. But, but Ed Asner as Joker aside, uh, the thing about Jared Leto not being in any more of these is that if you know, can you imagine an, a Jared Leto Joker? as driven by James Gunn, though. I think that would have been pretty fucking amazing. I That's agree. the thing. It's who's piloting that ship now, you know? <clears throat> well, anyway, so they rolled right into... Uh, <laughs> I, feel pretty, I feel pretty confident that Brian Singer's not going to be back at the helm of much lately. No. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 well, and then again, you know, David Ayers is, has been smeared over Suicide Squad, but I have a feeling that he, because I liked his other work, and I have a feeling that there was a version of that movie that was a lot closer to what we imagine it should have been. Yeah, you know, I agree. He, it's been pretty mysterious. There, I think there's a little retconning in the in the commentary after that movie came out, because he's one of those those uh, creators that has made the mistake of engaging people after the fact and, and defending the work, which is a terrible idea. Yeah. Right? So, Agreed. the more he talks about it, the worse, the deeper hole it gets into, but... So anyway, they said uh, uh, Ben Affleck officially, officially out. Yes, and I'm of two minds about that. The Batman v Superman part, you know, that era, I thought, cool looking Batman, cool looking Bruce Wayne, great looking suit, and hampered by terrible material. By the time Justice League rolled around, he's just standing around mouthing lines in broad daylight with a CGI sky, and it was just. There was no there there, but I like to imagine that there was a version of a solo Batman movie with with Batfleck that could have been good. Unfortunately, he's become too big for the story, right? I mean, there's no way he was going to yeah. come back and do this without the story being about Ben Affleck. So I understand 
why it was ultimately what it was that he's gone. Now that said, there's all this talk about what's coming next. And a lot of the scuttlebutt about that new Batman movie is that it's a younger detective, noirish detective oriented script. And it's a younger Batman. And I'm all in favor. Have you seen some of the people that have been mentioned as supposedly being talked to some having been discounted, but did you see any of that? No, I did not. I, I, I kind of fell off after I, after Matt Reeves, was confirmed to be doing it yeah. and filling in the, the Ben Affleck thing. So I have not seen uh, who is, has been rumored. So for a while, there was this... Uh, so for a while, there was this this thing going around for about a straight week. There was all this scuttlebutt that uh, Army Hammer had been tapped. And that's a, really? holdover, that's a holdover from the first Justice League movie that was aborted, right? Because he was cast in that movie. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely one of those actors that you're like, when are you going to be in a superhero movie, right? Because he's got that look and everything i'm glad that it was discounted because i don't think that's the well, direction to go so you're saying lone ranger wasn't a superhero movie to you <laughs> well it's also <laughs> it wasn't a movie to me you want that's true yeah all yeah. i wanted to see was uh was was uh <laughs> the absurdist <laughs> image of of johnny depp as tonto where he took the image where the crow's behind him and made it part of the headdress i mean i was just i was no matter how uh drunk that was in concept i love the execution in the trailers i just heard it was bad enough that i it's way low on my list to get no to the, the the trailers were much better movies than the movie yeah that's terrible yeah as but we've I often just, said I, as I, we've I, often said you can make a bad movie good with trailers but you can't make a good movie bad with trailers yeah. i mean it, but it's so uh, the the one thing about going back to the, the younger detective noir type of thing is how are they going to align that with where they want justice league to go i don't think they don't care i don't think they care at all i think yeah i, I don't I think, think they have, i don't I think, think they have a plan i don't think they have a plan they have no. no idea what they're doing no and i think that what i think what we've seen is that they are throwing things at the wall to see what sticks and then they will course correct based on that and then pretend that that was their idea all along so right now aquaman is their biggest hit which is mm-hmm. mysterious because <laughs> aquaman was absurd enough that it was the gag in the entourage on yes. HBO, right? Like it was so bad that James Cameron's Aquaman was considered <laughs> the lowest of the low for him in big budget movies to take. And now this is their now this is their tentpole that's unseated Wonder Woman. Okay, so there's something terribly, terribly shameful in the universe where the Aquaman movie is considered the high mark for DC movies and you know, Batman, Superman, Justice League are and even now Wonder Woman are falling way behind. And that's I mean, that's just astonishing. That yeah, said, it's almost like Trump's president or something. That said, really yes. That said, I think I think that they will use every movie as an opportunity to reboot, and if it does well enough and they can find a way to build off of it, they will. And I think that they're not in one sense, I applaud that because if you're fearless about recasting and re and, and changing course to make something better, instead of being a slave to some scheme that isn't working, fine. That said, the pickle they're in with Justice League is that half of the people they like and half of the people they've dumped. And so whatever melange they're going to come up with in the future, if they do, is going to be disjointed. So I, I don't know. Yeah. That said, yeah. Uh, I would love I would love to see a younger... Because you know all I want is Batman Year One, right? I just want him in a proto well, suit, fumbling along, using smoke grenades and stuff and not knowing what he's doing. Yeah. But I, I thought they had really mined that pretty well in uh, Gotham. Right, that's serious. And Gotham is horseshit and it has nothing to do with it. I know. I'm, 
and and Batman Begins, right? Batman Begins did a great job of it, yes. But yeah. no armor. I want him to be as vulnerable as you could be, right? Daredevil Just... season one, yeah. Exactly. So anyway, so the most interesting of the rumored interviews or early, you know, pre-audition discussions or whatever, and on first blush, it's the kind of BuzzFeed thing that is there to shock you into saying, that's outrageous. But then I thought about it and I was like, wow, this is actually interesting. Uh, what's his name from uh, the uh, the uh, the vampire? Well, you remember those teen vampire movies that were so popular? With uh, here we are, uh, Twilight. Twilight, that guy. What's his name? Yes, who's the main vampire guy? He, you look it up. I'm doing it right now. Yeah, this is the age we are. Doesn't really matter. We're zeroing in like an ICBM on this guy. So he. All I knew of him was... Robert Pattinson. Robert pa- Yeah, okay. So all I knew of him was, like, one of the Twilight movies I saw and then the Harry Potter thing. And when he's young, he has that sort of Andrew Garfield-style distorted head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I saw a lot of the footage of him in two recent films that I haven't actually seen, but he's done a war flick and he's done another one where you start to see him as he's aging because he's actually got a few more years on him and he's a young man now. Yeah. Imagine him as a young Bruce Wayne. Because Batman's all about Bruce Wayne, right? No matter what. You've got to be able to pull off Bruce Wayne in order to pull off the Batman, right? And so I can see him. I'm going to be an early advocate of him, Patterson, as a young Batman. I'll take it. Yeah, I would have read. I think I'd rather see him as Green Lantern in the reboot. Huh. I think he's got more of the. I think he's got more of the archetype of that. The. uh, yeah, but I, I can see the the aesthetic and the hair and and all that being. I, I guess either one would be fine. What what but it is for me is not the shock of hair that he had when he was younger, but it's especially when he cut, he trims it down or and I push it back. He has the strong brow and the sort of mm-hmm. the deep set eyes, and he's got a face that can be. Uh, he can be ambiguous about what he's thinking, and I think he's got a face. I can imagine him playing a Bruce Wayne that is staging just like you know what we want right staging pretending to be the bruce wayne but he's really that guy in the back that doesn't really know what he wants to be i can see him doing mm-hmm. that. i don't know so uh and then also right on the heels of this uh it seemed like it was full tilt that uh superman was gone and then uh cavill was being mysterious about it and then he kind of rolled back a little bit but it seemed more more or less like he's gone right and he's doing the witcher now as well so yeah um so, I had some thoughts on that real quick. Okay. Who? So, Superman is an enigma, man. I can't even draw the character properly. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's so many wrong things about every attempt to cast him and a lot of right. Like, I've liked most of their attempts and then it wasn't quite right. I actually really like Cavill as Superman, but it is a it is a menacing Superman. He is me- physically imposing and he has a little bit of a mm, something about his face. I was wondering, is there anybody that you can think of that might make a reasonable Superman in a recast? So I'm I'm going to go back to the one that I think is always the, I think never got as much credit. Alan Arkin. No, Brandon Routh. Uh huh. I really liked him yeah. in that role. I thought he played it really well. I think he has uh, the right looks the right kind of charisma to pull it off. And he's not as snarky and demonic as Cavill. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Cavill, I love so much when he plays uh, 
uh, murky to dark. Like I loved him in Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible. Right? Like, like that's all I wanted yes. was more of him. You know, yes. it's like don't scar Especially his beautiful face. <laughs> Especially when he does the double reload, right? Oh, oh my god, I love it. mustache! Oh, I, I so beg, I just beg the universe to give us a leak footage of him doing all of that Superman footage with the mustache. Man, I want to see it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I would go back to Brandon Ralph. I really like him. Okay, I really like. I it. felt he was skinny, and I also felt like he was. The, I mean, he was being told because that was the whole project to imitate the Donner stuff and to pretend to be Reeves. And I felt like he was, in a way, trapped. Yes. I haven't seen the the CW stuff where he's a different character in 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 DC stuff, but I know that he has talked at conventions about how free he is when he's playing roles where he's not locked into doing an impression of a dead actor. So I think right. you can imagine a world in which Christopher Reeves didn't exist or a world in which the director of Superman wasn't telling him to imitate him, he could have done a better job for sure. He was agreed, trapped. Agreed, but he I was trapped. But but I really I, I really liked him as that. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So here's my deal. I want him to be, and Cavill was close to this. I want him to be, the. Just that, that statuesque proto man look, with the cheekbones and the beautiful face and the powerful muscles and being tall and everything else. Here's who I say, Matt Bomer. Do you know who he is? I think he was on like suits or something for a long time. And then yeah. look up Matt Bomer. Okay. This is live. Live. Uh, how do you B A U M E R? B O M E R, I think. This is a hot take. Okay. Yeah. Do you see that? I can see that. I can see that. I, you know, it's just, I mean, he has, he has the eyes, he has the face and the cheekbones and everything. He has this. He has this, this presence, and it's almost like if you were, he looks a lot like if you were to take Henry Cavill and tone him down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've seen him in a number of things, a number of random uh, projects, and uh, he was White Collar was the show that he's been on for a long time. Yeah. The other thing I like about him is he's he's an uh, openly gay actor. And I think it would be amazing to have an openly gay actor playing Superman. It would rile up the wrong people really well, and it would be really inspiring to other people, right? I think it'd be really cool. Well, it's just like Idris Elba. It's just like Idris Elba as uh, Bond. Right. The the people that the the people that you know you should no longer associate with self-identify themselves very well. (laughs) (laughs) Assholes always advertise, man. Yep. Right. So then, so then we got to the whole Suicide Squad thing, and then Margot Robbie was out, and then maybe she was in. And then she was out, and then she was in. And so, generally speaking, I think that Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn is the most iconic image from the Suicide Squad film. Oh, yeah. One of the best designs in the DC cinematic universe. And I would love for her to still be in Suicide Squad in some way. So I hope she does come back. I feel like they're fainting that she's not in it, but that she'll actually be in it. I'm not sure. However, some of the early footage of Birds of Prey the not footage but the site you know, like the spoilery site photos the scoop photos mm-hmm. uh, a little uh, the costume design I'm a little bit uncertain about I'm starting to wonder if this is maybe I'm like I'm not the target market for this film Could a be. lot of sequins and and not slinky sequins like neon right. 80s glitter costumes with puffy <laughs> collars she looks like David Bowie almost right Liberace Liberace yeah. yeah I don't know what's going on I have trust in the process I'm ready 
but I'm not quite sure. I really like even as as purient as her Suicide Squad costume was, and how and how they you know sort of exploited the sexuality of the character. I think that the costume mm-hmm. designs were very uh, they were very well put together. They were very well mm-hmm. uh, defined, and I'm not sure from what I've seen. I'm not sure if we're just seeing her in like her version of civvies, right? Like, I don't know. Like, she's usually outside of a liquor store or something, so who knows, right? But yeah. uh, the one that they have confirmed is out is uh, Will Smith. Well, yeah. Long gone. He's going to have enough blowback from Aladdin that he'll be... Oh, decades. my God. How is it that the studio that has had the kind of, the kind of uh, fresh takes of their live-action interpretations recently that they've had for, like, three or four in a row, and then they do that... <laughs> There's nothing about that film that looks exciting to me. I, I after seeing that one trailer, I, if I was the studio head, I'd be like, "We're melting and repouring. We're like this. We're, we're I would do that too. We're taking the two hundred million dollar hit, and we're they done. can afford that. How oh. can you let that out? Especially when, for some reason, they have two different Disney live action films competing with each other. I can't understand how on the pipeline this works that you have Lion King live actions, you know, whatever CGI Lion King and Aladdin. Basically, being getting trailers out at the same time, where one is making the other one look like such horseshit, right? Yeah, no, it's it's not even close. It's uh, uh that is going to be an outright debacle. This is like uh, Ishtar. Yeah, it like, is Ishtar. Uh, That's really? a really good point. That's Smishtar. Smishtar. A Ishtar. A Oh my I mean, god! It's, well, it's like the Lone Ranger. It's like the Lone Ranger. You know this is going to be so bad. Yeah, it's coming down the pipe. It's going to be so bad. And what was the other one? Maverick. You just knew that Maverick was going to be bad with yeah. Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster and the yeah. Rockford Files. I mean, it's just oh my god. <laughs> what was surprising stop. to me though, just this last week, was that I, Idris Elba was announced as replacing him as Deadshot. Here's another guy that wants That's to be the- in a superhero movie. You look at that thing with the. With the uh, Shaw and Shaw and what I told the, that whole spinoff mm-hmm. series and that trailer that came out and he's a super he's like a total post human right if I can say that right he's obviously uh, bio enhanced and he's got a cool costume and he's yeah. a super powered kind of dude he looks so rad and then they say what can we do with this guy we'll bring him into the the superhero universe it's gonna be badass there's so many amazing characters he could play how about we just recast Deadshot with the one eye with the lens and it's just why would you do that? I'm not a fan of that character and never have been, but this makes no sense to me. But Idris wasn't like Thor. It. Idris huh? wasn't Thor, and he was in Avengers, right? So Yeah, yeah, but I felt like he was improperly used in those movies. I think in the in Thor and Dark World, uh he did okay in but he you know, Ragnarok. But what I'm saying is I want to see him fully superheroed right. out. Right? And front and center, front and yes, center, yes. our attention. Yes. yes, not hidden by hair and shawls and and, yeah. and and gathering civilians and blind and all that. I want to see him like these. I want him. I want to see him in the kind of role that is normally relegated to handsome white actors, yeah, the yeah, Bonds of the world, just like right? Bond. Right. Bond, right, 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 right. The, uh, I mean, you take a look at uh, just a little side on Thor. Thor is an absolute bloodbath for everybody around Thor. Yeah, <clears throat> right. They they killed everybody off they, they, yeah that they, third movie though they just gave him carte blanche to just go crazy <laughs> that was pretty fun actually it was it was sad but fun <laughs> but idris elba was just on saturday Night live and it was not good it was the worst of the season but one of the things that was shocking to me uh he has a lot of magnetism he's got a lot of charm mm-hmm. but he also has something wrong with his teeth that i never saw before 
There's always like something weird going on. So I'm not. That could ruin his superhero career, right? They ought to have the nice teeth or else. Well, he lives, he lives in Britain. He doesn't want to get those corrected because he'll stand out. I know. <laughs> I know. Like perfectly crisp, white, bright teeth. Yeah. I think Henry Cable doesn't belong there anymore, right? Because he got them all fixed. Um, what about Arnie Hammer? What about Arnie Hammer as superhero? As Superman? As Superman? That was the rumor. Oh, Batman, right. So Arnie Hammer was originally... Either he was originally... Well, I don't remember if he was originally cast as Batman or Superman in that first Justice League, but he is yeah. a very obvious Superman cipher. Yeah. If anything, he sh- yeah. yeah, so... Yes, I agree with you. He also was, I feel like, if he wasn't a short list for Captain America, he was talked a lot about as being a Captain America, which I can see that. Yeah. Also, the the character roster for Suicide Squad came out. James Gunn version. And yes. dig this. You've got... Uh, what's his name? You have the shark dude. What's his name? King Shark. Which I think is fantastic, right? Giant humanoid shark with a hammerhead, right? Fantastic. Uh, (laughs) There's a guy called Ratcatcher, a supervillain that catches rats. Communicate with rodents. Uh, And I think they're going to uh, gender bend that to make it a female that communicates with rodents. Girls like rats. Also, Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man. He's got multicolored polka dots on his body. He can turn them into fireballs and other weapons. He's embarrassed by his abilities. And then finally, Peacemaker, who was the worst of 80s knockoff Punishers, of which DC made several. (laughs) He is an agent of peace whose motives are driven by an extremist form of pacifism that makes him love peace so much he would kill for it. (laughs) Ha ha ha! Chrome helmet, red short-sleeved t-shirt, shoulder pads... Lots of guns, white pants. So the thing is, this all sounds absolutely terrible. However, James, it sounds, it sounds, James it sounds, Gunn, it sounds though. Like yeah, but James Gunn. Because James Gunn took all of that Kirby Fourth World stuff that is space madness in the wrong hands, and he made Ragnarok look absolutely fucking amazing. So, you know, I give him a lot of leeway. Also, maybe unlike the first Suicide Squad, uh, oh, sorry, uh, it, that, Taika oh, no. Titi, but also, yeah, that, that, but the Guardians not, of the Galaxy stuff, it's all the same. Good. It's all the same stuff. It's, I mean, he started it and Waititi continued it, but it's this idea of taking some of the more absurdist Marvel characters and legitimizing them with personality. I think he could do that. Okay. Also, Suicide Squad was all about suicide, right? It was all about take this job. You probably won't survive, but if you survive, you you get a pardon, right? So in the original Suicide Squad, a sum total of one guy, um, you know, prematurely dies and then one more or whatever at the end. So I think I can imagine a Suicide Squad movie from James Gunn where a lot of people are taken taken out in the course of the mission. No better than Polka Dot Man, right? Yeah, no better. All right. Uh, finally, uh, let's see. We have uh, the whole thing with Shazam. The Shazam, more, more more trailers have come out. They're banking on it a little bit. What do you think? Uh, I'm still way on the fence on that one. Captain Sparkle uh, Fingers. Thought, yeah, I, uh, it, to me, it actually got worse the more trailer that it, it got worse. Mm-hmm. Um, they should have kept us in, a, in suspension and disbelief because I'm pretty sure this is... Uh, you remember how Kick-Ass was really good and then Kick-Ass 2 was not? 
Mm-hmm. This is looking a lot more like Kick-Ass 2 than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, and, and the casting, I just really... Uh, I don't understand the casting at all. The The lead for Shazam just doesn't... Really? Yeah. No, I think it should have been The Rock all the way through, but that's just me. I mean, I think... So, I think it's... I think he's got the... I mean, if you're playing it as a superhero big... I think he, they've got him there, but I think that the problem is that they've given him too dark, a weird hair, and I yeah. think that the suit's overly exaggerated, padded shoulders and everything. He doesn't have the traps. I mean, he did a lot of working out, and he's he got he got real he got really stacked for this role. But in cinematic terms, you know, he's being overshadowed yeah. by the costumes uh, mass, and I think that's a problem to me. Every time I see it, I'm like, well, I feel like he's wearing fake shoulder pads, and there you go. So, yeah. No, it's it's it, it, uh, I call it Clooneyism. It's uh, Clooneyism, the codpiece cod for Batman, right? Yeah, the, right. And nipples, and mm-hmm. nipples, never the nipples. All right, I'm going to roll again. Here we go. Are you ready? Hold, I am. Your, hold your breath. Emma Watson cast in a Black Widow film. Mm. <laughs> non confirmed. Non confirmed. However. Uh, supposedly, they're talking about her being cast as a badass female Bond type. And what I like about that idea, first of all, I really like that actress. And also, I like the idea that they're setting this in the 80s or something, early, pre, it's a prequel kind of movie. And if they're going to go Winter Soldier style Cold War stuff, mm-hmm. I like the idea of badass women spies battling it out and being clever. Yeah, Brit- no, British means clever. It does mean clever. Um, so, what do you it think? looks like. I think it looks great. I think that would be a wonderful uh, addition. That said, they've said and Emma Watson, and Emma Watson done some amazing things. Uh, she's done some amazing things. She's really, I mean, she's as inspiring or as interesting out off the camera as she is on, right? Like it's all the stuff mm-hmm. that she's like Natalie Portman did, right? Put a lot of time into interesting things beyond her roles, and that's. It, yeah, no, it she, leads back into your impression of her, right? Yeah, yeah, no, she she's cut from the same cloth as Natalie Portman, right? I really that they they're in the same kind of uh, class. I'm optimistic. I wish it was an R-rated movie, and they said it was never going to be R and all this, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, all right, I think we have time for one more. Let's see here. Let's one, you want to do one I'm more? Happy that, I'm happy that ScarJo is actually getting paid for it. Yeah. Uh, a fifteen million dollar, fifteen to twenty million. That's great. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, with the with the uh, unfortunate hair cuts that they give her in these movies. <laughs> Interesting. They just need to get Bill Skarsgård into it, and then I'll be really happy. <laughs> I, me too. That would be. I'd be super into that, actually. Yeah. And yet, and yet. What is he doing? What is he doing now? What's his latest thing? Well, it too. He's got to do that first. That's got to come out, and then um, I don't know what he's going to do after that. I'm just really looking forward to it too. All right. So the last thing we have here is the X Men, the latest X Men trailer. They did two. They did oh. one right after the Super Bowl or something, and then they did another. I thought one. it was in the Super Bowl, wasn't or it? Maybe it was. Maybe it was. And then they yeah. did another one last week. And actually, Boy, how bad is that Super Bowl? Uh, no. I refuse. (laughs) 
but uh, you know, nothing at halftime, people. Three nothing. The thing, <laughs> the, th- the thing is, I tend to be an optimist when they need my help, and I'm going to be optimist on this film. I actually think that the last two trailers, each one was better than the last. I want it to be good, man. I want them to go out with an interesting film before all this is, you know, scorched earth and it's gone. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The expired um, earth. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, but you have to understand that I that I grew up reading X Men, yeah, right? Me too. And the, Dark, and the Dark Phoenix saga was like the seminal moment in in comics for me, right? Like that. Yes. That was that yes. was my pinnacle. That was my zenith. So and did you read I that just, at the time? What? Yeah, I read it. Yeah, I was I was buying it fresh issues, and I was a total X head. So this is like some serious shit right here, guys, because. Yeah. Begin again, Blake Simmons, not only being the elder statesman of this podcast, you predate me in X-Men reading because I was X-Men 172 was my first issue. And then I went backwards. Oh, I think I this think is 20- 140s. This is 140s for uh, it is 140s. Jean Grey. Yep. Yeah. So the thing about this, the, the fundamental problem with this is that you can't tell the Dark Phoenix story without having a long legacy of Jean Grey as a hero and as a character before this fall. This is like correct. This is like what DC did with various aspects of their stories in the in the DC films, where they skip to the end. Batman v Superman <laughs> to start the t- to start the project. It's like, right? like, like enough already. I enough mean, already. You know who these people are. You, you know can't. These people are. You can't go to the end without having paid for it. You haven't. They didn't earn it, right? So you can't. It's really hard to give any justice to the to the dark phoenix storyline if you haven't had time to see her grow into a powerful emotional mature individual having gone through all those adventures before this happened that's the whole point she was yes she was poisoned that this the the phoenix force poisons her and overpowers her and she you know that that's the whole tragedy of that story and you get nothing Mm -hmm. if you just skip right to it and they haven't given her enough to do to make that happen. It's like X Men Three all over again, right? Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's, it is, and it just gives a short shrift to the 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 legacy and the pantheon of it. It's just, it's it's disappointing, and so I just I have that in my head. Every I just project that onto it that it's just the, it's going to be a disaster no matter what. <laughs> And just like X Men Three, like uh, the Days of Future Past, I love that because it was a rewrite of, yes. of uh, right, and the, and it has broke the mold. It's like the first Star Trek reboot. Right. The other ones, the other ones are dog shit, but the, Star, the original Star Trek reboot was just brilliant, and that it rewrote um, a lot of it in a believable way. And you know, I people, just don't, people hated Dark, Days of Future. A lot of people complained about it, but I thought that they handled Trask, and I thought they handled a lot of that stuff pretty well for the for the continuity that they had created. I right. thought it wasn't bad for that. Yeah, but I just think I like as, a, as a standalone, even yeah. if you don't see any other X Men movie, you yeah. can go see the Future Past and enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, it's I still think no, I I still think that uh, Vaughn's uh, original First Class was the most yeah. interesting of these X Men movies because it was the one that took r- the biggest risks in terms of recontextualizing these characters. Now that said, what I really don't understand is everyone agrees that. Uh, Brett Ratner's X3 was the low watermark for the series. And when mm-hmm. you're when you're considered in worse esteem than a predator, <laughs> you know <laughs> you know that's a problem. And yet in this film, 
Kinberg, I think it's Kinberg who's still doing it, right? Kinberg is doubling down and showing a lots of suburban imagery that looks right out of X3, right? All yeah. that, the, yeah. you know, her, her, her old neighborhood and all that stuff looks, and I really, and so here's what I want to ask you. Do you think that this is a bait and switch? Uh, they're broadcasting so heavily that Mystique gets taken out in that, that, in that scene and they're saying, well, yep, it had to happen. It was really sad. I betting it's not true. I bet it's not true either. Yeah. And and, and I also, I'm also betting that the reason why they went back to suburbia is they just wanted to put James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender in the same scenes yes. that Patrick Stewart. And... Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Some and, of the most and, interesting imagery in those trailers yeah. is uh, is uh, Magneto coming in with, hey, being an early reader, when you read it on the page, was he Magneto or Magneto to you? Magneto. Yeah, interesting. Because you're a man of science. You were a pre-man of science. He was a Magneto to me growing up. No, so I thought magnet, magneto. Yeah, I get it. Right. Uh, so, uh, so when he shows up and he's in that like, like steel version of his hel- unpainted version of his helmet, and yeah. then like regular clothes, and then she's crushing it. I mean, he looks so like we've done away with the colors and all the 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 sort of faux royalty stuff about him, and he's just coming in, coming in hot. I mean, he looks so cool, and then and then even though of course there's no chance of it working, I love the image of him like and he has all the the AR-15s, whatever, you know? Yeah. I think that looks really cool. I don't think it's actually Phoenix that he's going after. I think the I think the raid on that car, and I think that whole scene is uh, Jessica uh, Chastain's mystery character. Smith. Yeah, Smith, yeah. That's and, I and, and I think uh, they're pretty the, good on the trailers, but I still think it's just... Uh, I So what I was hoping for when I heard that this was actually coming out was that it would be the crossover to bring the X-Men into the MCU timeline more. Uh, yeah. Right. But, but they don't, and, this is still a Fox project, so they'll never do it. Yeah. But this, if they, if they could have done it with a screen and a tie in, uh, right. Like I, yeah. uh, I was just really hoping that that would be the, the, the entree to bring the MC, the, the MCU and X-Men together, because I've always had this fetish for the X-Men Avengers mm-hmm. conflicts or stories and I was hoping that they would set that up as the next wave of the MCU, but yeah, not going to happen. Well, you know, it'll be. I mean, it's the number one question after yeah. Endgame does or undoes or rewrites or does whatever they're going to choose to do. Yep, satisfying one half of the viewership and outraging the other half. It's the the number one question is how they're going to bring in those these franchise characters like the Fantastic yeah. Four and the X Men and there's so much potential for radness. I'm so optimistic for it. I mean, it's I, be great. I, I'm still blown away by how seamlessly they pulled the Spider Man integration. Right. I thought I thought that was going to be an absolute disaster, and they pulled it off seamlessly. It so, was just a- all right. So I'm not going to. So I I won't dip into this too much because it's in the end of our our little list here. But did you see? Spider toll into the spider toll. Yeah, <laughs> you did. Okay, yes. so we're gonna talk about that later. Okay, so I think it's enough uh, random news for the day, and I think it's time for our main event. Tonight, my dear Maxwell, I'm ready to try my experiment on a human. Yes. All right. So our main event. It's an all Stevenson all the time. Main event robot reviews because you told me because you and I love this writer you said Tom just because you say you can't read and you have no time to read doesn't mean you can't listen <clears throat> and I've said this now three or four four shows that I took your advice and I 
got the audiobooks and I started listening and you've changed my life <laughs> because yep. now again. I don't mind traffic again. At, at, again, again, buddy, every day you do. in your little ways. Sometimes for the worse, your sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better. But every this... time I eat a pizza, I wonder if I'm going to swell, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Yes, you, you, you out and you have the yes. gout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, so I have burned through. Uh, I burned through Reemdy, mm-hmm. thirty six hours or something, thirty nine hours of audiobook. Then I moved to once I got over the preciousness of the page and being willing to accept that I would listen to this and accept the narrative's voice, the narrative voice of the of the reader and everything else. I instantly fell in love with the medium mm-hmm. i still i actually have a couple of lit, like true books that i'm going through at night every once in a while when i have time but this is amazing to me i can listen to it every day where i'm hard pressed to pick up a piece of paper other than my work most days so ream d first then i went back and listened to snow crash which you challenged me to reassess after my high school reading and then now i'm in seven eves so which one do you want to talk about Oh, we're going to start with Rimdy first. Okay. So you, this is the one you told me. You said if you're going to do an audiobook and you're going to do a nice long Stevenson project, do Rimdy. Yes. Tell me why you thought I should read Rimdy as my first way back in. Because uh, to me, it's, well, up until Seven Eves, right? Um, and the Quicksilver tr- the trilogy and the, the Baroque cycle and, and, you know, all of that stuff. It's, it's, uh, those are the books that he's best known for, probably to the massive, the, the most, widespread audience right but rimdi to me is one of these i mean even from the title which is an intentional typo on read me right right um it was the perfect blend that i think only neil stevenson could write and pull off effectively because it has all of these uh at since you know at first blush these nonsensical plot elements that he introduces uh, very early mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. and it kind of and it kind of left like what the fuck did i just read or what did i right. just listen to right this doesn't make any sense at all about why he's bringing in the different um, characters and backgrounds, right? It does. It doesn't make any goddamn sense. If you trust hey. him, you just go along with it and see. And also, like uh, Gibson did, this is one of the Stevenson did Zodiac, right? Yes. So, which is a complete departure from uh, no, sure, but Stevenson, so, Stevenson did Zodiac. Yeah. So Zodiac and this one are the two where he went real world pseudo real world after doing some far out stuff yes in a in a way that was disarming but at the same time even more challenging right so in the same way that uh gibson did where it becomes even harder to do a near 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 future right than what they were accustomed to that was the same thing with this one but at the same time also keeping in mind that i listen i read this or i listened to this and then i went back and did snow crash which was his more his most famous sort of avant-garde, put him on the map, um, overly ambitious project, which we'll talk about. It was interesting to see how he married themes in Reemdy more deftly than he did in Snow Crash. So yes. there are big, 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 big themes at work in Reemdy that are subtle in, in, in execution, whereas Snow Crash has some thesis papers in it that are read as thesis papers. So there's a really different approach to how he handled it. He he's yep. he went in way under the radar on Reem D. When you're reading it, you, for all you know, you're like, well, this is like, you know, this is just an interesting, you know, everybody meets in the same intersection at the end kind of story. And it's not. It's actually pretty compelling. 
yes. the, the interweaving of those things. Anyway, go go back. Well, so, and, and, uh, and also, but but I also think it was it, it also built off of things that he's very known for, which is geographical settings and locales. Yeah. In the former Soviet bloc and the breakup of that and the intelligence apparatus that was there and now it's kind of freelancing for the highest bidder. Uh, it ties into the Philippines in a very subtle way. Which he loves. Really yep. Right, which ties into Cryptonomicon in a very powerful way. Still my favorite of his books, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so to me, it was just everything that you would ever want of, of, if you if you're a big fan of his portfolio, RimD is it right? It it is the culmination, and to me, the perfect blend. It's sort of like um, uh, Plantiac and Fight Club, right? Yeah. That Fight Club was the culmination of all these things and these layers that were built up in writing styles and approaches and plotline development and character development. To me, RimD is is the quintessential. Neil Stevenson book. If I was going to say read one book from Neil Stevenson, it would be this, and then it'd be Snow Crash, and it'd be Cryptonomicon. In That's that interesting. Order. That's interesting. So, so let me ask you. I have two questions. One, how was Reemd? Because I'm very, I'm not familiar with how literary works are received either within the literary world and also in the general, the general mainstream. But also, so how was how was Reemd received? And also, what is the order of his? Not every book, but what is the general sequence of the books that he published? Because I'm reading them out of order, so I'm not really sure. I went, I went, Snow Crash, Zodiac, the Quicksilver stuff. Well, the first three, mm-hmm. I only recently discovered that there were more, but the first three, then jump to these. Yeah. So I'm not really sure where, I, I want to understand his evolution. So, um, the, the, the evolution, according to the bibliography that I that I have at my back end call, yes, is it started off with uh, the Big U back in 1984. Oh, that yes. was actually that was actually his first kind did, of. Did you read that? Oh yeah, I've read everything. <laughs> was it was Big U good? Because it didn't it didn't it didn't strike me as good at the time, so I didn't read it. No, well, it it, um, it it was kind of his. You could see he was still a punk ass counterculture kid that was writing about counterculture shit mm-hmm. and it was just his first uh coming out party if you will about mm-hmm. the, that general thing and then to follow it up four years later was zodiac which was his real environmental workforce yes. saga in the boston harbor which i thought was amazing i love that book it's still yeah. i still reference it in third rail uh stories in that in my my work there's a lot of references to zodiac in there yeah and to me that that was that was a pivotal book for him because it, it kind of got him the the chops from the critics, but then Snow Crash just kind of blew the lid off, right? It was such a big departure from the Big U and Zodiac that mm. it went it went into this. Uh, so Snow, really, so Zodiac was before Snow Crash. Yeah, it was four years snow, before Snow Crash. I thought it was the other way around. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. And then because um, I read Snow Crash first, uh, a good friend of mine, John Gallo, uh, had it on his bookshelf, and uh, at some night that went way too long. Um, he said, I, I have to read it. And I did. And then I went back and uh, read the big U Zodiac and then diamond age was mm-hmm. the one that came after snow crash. Right. And then cryptonomicon uh, after diamond age. So diamond age was before. Okay. Right. Okay. I often forget yeah. diamond age. You're right. So I like yeah. diamond age at a time when I remembering this, right? Diamond age was, was him solo. Yes. So I like diamond age. Well, let me, hold on. Let me, let me, yeah, no, it's a solo book. Yeah. So I read, uh, or I struggled through, 
is another book where I think I would like it more today than I did at the time. But I struggled through Gibson and Sterling doing the Difference Engine. Oh, yeah. But then reading Diamond Age much later, I thought Diamond Age pulled off, uh, you know, Victoria, Future Tech Victorian in a way that Difference Engine didn't. I mean, they're not exactly the same concept in any way, but Diamond Age felt very organic. Literally. Mm -hmm. Organic. (laughs) By organics. And uh, and more, Diamond Age felt more on the mark than almost all of Sterling's catalog, which to me is an affront to Sterling, because if there's any corner of the cyberpunk universe that Sterling tried to try to grab on, it was it was uh, algae. Right. But anyway, (laughs) go on. (laughs) Indeed. So okay, so so but, but, but it's I, Snow Crash, then Diamond Age, then right. the Baroque Cycle, and then well, Cryptonomicon, so, then the Baroque right? Cycle, and that's it. And then that's at the Baroque Cycle, which uh, was Quicksilver, Confusion, and System of the World. Yep, that was my honeymoon, right. by the way. Right, I'm a hot date. I'm a hot date. There, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then and then there, 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 then he went into kind of an impenetrable phase. I, I think he tried to go a little Umberto Eco on everyone. Uh, from a sci-fi perspective, and did Anathem and the Mongoliad, uh, mm. right? But those were those are really two. And you know, I still haven't gotten through Anathem, and every every ten pages or so, I'm I'm sort of haunted by um, the uh, the sort of af- the the shivery after effects of having been forced to read the Canticle for Leibowitz. You know, like I just it's right. not yeah, like we didn't need to remake that. <laughs> like I just. Well, it, 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 it was the same thing for me in high school when, when they punished us to read, you know, Name of the Rose. Right, right. right? And I'm like, I, I had to read that book like three times with a thesaurus to <laughs> really, you know, to tease that out. Yeah. And then the Mongoliad was just, uh, the, that was a really different book. Because <laughs> uh, it was, it was it, so I don't know if you realize it, but it was, um, it was really released as a serialized format. Yes, online. I remember that. I remember that. Right? Yes, yes, and then and then yes. it was the first foray for him into these iOS and Android apps. Right, I remember that. And then he brought it back together and published a book. He was he was partnering with someone. Right, if I remember that. And then yeah. and then Remedy, and then Seventies, and then to me, um, his most uh, ill-received book, The Rise and Fall of Dodo. Aha. Uh-huh. Right in 2017, and I'm still waiting with bated breath for uh, Fall or Dodge and Hell. What's that? That's supposed. It's his next book coming out this year. Uh, standalone or tied to something? It's standalone. Okay, and so was the rise and fall of Dodo a fictional book or what was uh, it? Uh, the rise and fall of Dodo was about a. a so this is the, the Neil Stevenson Nicole Galland collaboration, mm. and it was a secret U.S. government agency that uh, was aptly named the Department of Diachronic Operations. Dodo, uh-huh. okay, right. And they changed history through the use of magic because there was a there was okay. a certain event during an eclipse that magic uh, disappeared, and mm-hmm. so they were going back in time to try and to reinvent the past to recreate the future. You could see how you would sort of dip his toes in the Alan Moore, Warren Ellis kind of world a little bit there. That doesn't surprise me that he would go in that direction. Yeah. What did you think of it? Uh, I I so to me I was kind of disappointed because it was the it was a it was a one book. That just really, you know, it, you could tell it was meant to be a series, and so I have to take a step yeah. back. Like fall or Dodge and Hell could be a follow-on to it because of the fall, right? So the rise and fall of Dodo, and then mm. fall or Dodge and Hell. I haven't been paying attention to any of it 
uh, the, you know, the hubbub and the gossip about it. Mm -hmm. So it could be a follow on to Dodo. Um, this, is but, totally, this is totally an aside, but my two uh, birthday delights other than, so one being hopefully once again, we try to do our Giants thing, but the other uh, birthday delight is uh, that we're going to get another Expanse novel at the end of March. So oh, I can't. Oh, listen, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready too. I've not because I've read every other goddamn thing that they put out, including all the novellas. Uh huh. So when I asked you, I'm like, should I read this or this? And you're like, the novellas are novellas. And I'm like, okay, fine. But I like them. But anyway, okay, okay, we're diverging. So let's talk yeah. about, okay, that gives me the sense of that. How was Reamby received in the press or in mainstream so reviews and stuff? Well, it, so I'm, I'm having trouble understanding right now. Okay, so sweet. Alexa just, yeah, sweet. Yeah, great. So Alexa just let us know what's going on. So um, Remzi was very well received by the critics, but it wasn't that commercially successful. So in a way that doesn't surprise me because, so I don't know, I don't know how normal readers get a hold of these books. I don't understand whether, so for me, I'm following, I, in, liter, in literary works, I follow authors. So I just, if I like an author, I read all their stuff in a row and then maybe I'll branch off if someone recommends something else, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't go to the bookstores and look at the cover art and say, okay, this or that is going to be the one I want to read. And I don't look at the book reviews to tell me which ones to read. It's literally about, I like this author. I like that author. And someone told me to read it. Okay. That said, I try to imagine the uninitiated non Stevenson devotee being given the summary or an excerpt or something from Reem D and being told this is going to be great. And I can see them reacting to it because like a lot of his stuff, it is confoundingly at cross purposes. He starts describing, you know, you can just imagine someone reading some little chunk of this, like a chapter of this, where he's attempting to redesign World of Warcraft in a world where World of Warcraft exists 14 years after World of Warcraft was a thing. And yet it's near future. Do you know what I'm saying? It's alternate universe version, Stevenson world, right? Mm -hmm. So I can see... A lot of science fiction writers and mainstream or science fiction readers and mainstream readers reading this and being like, why am I being uh, pandered to describing what, you know, how, how a multiplayer, uh, you know, free, free roam universe is supposed to work in a role playing in a video game. Right. Like I can mm -hmm. see that really misfiring. And then if you have experience in gaming and you have experience with his writing, you understand that what he's doing is he, he throws a dart at a thing that interested him and then he deep dives recursively so he'll just keep going and going and going and going until he finds some ephemeral truth in that thing right and he could be i'm, I'm waiting for the stevenson book about cabinetry right like he's just gonna go ape shit <laughs> four chapters on joinery you know like i know he'll do that and i'm along for that I ride agree. i will take it whatever he chooses to write about and go into the nth degree about his research i fucking love it because he's doing the research and not me there are, just like every single one of his books, there is a real hurdle to get over the fact that he's explaining things to the reader that if you have more familiarity with it, you have to, you have to bide your time yes. and say what, you know, because he doesn't do it in a way that if you know what this, this material is, you will be amused by it. He writes in a way that is like, he slips into primer mode and it's like, you're like okay, 
So you can move it with the joystick to the left and to the right. You're like, all right, I get this, you know. So I can imagine that being challenging. But what he's doing is he's going blank slate and saying, I'm going to create free roam multi-user role-playing game experience, and I'm going to describe how it is. And that's but, his version of it. Right, but, but, then, but then you take a look at what's happened, right? And you, even with, um, what is it, Ready Player One, Yeah. right? Which, which I think was the closest uh, emulator to... Uh, the avatars that, yeah, that sure. Stevenson had, right? In the MMORPG, uh, the massively, yeah. uh, what is it, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, right? And um, the fact that they're able to presage it or at least be tied into it enough to know that where it's going to come is pretty compelling. And then you see it manifest itself. And so then it, it's this whole Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah. Uh, life imitating art or, uh, you know, art imitating life that kind of drives the genre forward and the technology forward simultaneously in this kind of hopscotch fashion. But the thing is, he knows, so let's say, so for example, in his earlier works, and Seven Eves is, is included in this, but in his in his uh, earlier but, works, he's taken... But dip- Snow Crash, yeah, Snow Crash, Snow Crash, and to me is the seminal one on the sci-fi event that really set the stage for well, a lot of things that have happened. Snow Crash is unique in that he was right on the forefront. So like Gibson, yeah. he was describing things that were just in their infancy. So... Uh, it has its own issues reading it now, yeah. which we'll talk about. But in all of his works, he takes a thing and he deep dives. And if it's a thing that you're not overtly familiar with, for example, he's done locksmithing, right? And he's yes. gone into the nth degree about that. Or metallurgy. And or alchemy. And alchemy. And yeah, right. Right. Quicksilver, right. right. Yeah. And so, or, you know, the, 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 like, he'll, amazing, I know more about nautical, nautical physics <laughs> from him than I do about anybody else, right? Uh that's interesting because like you or I, most intel- most fairly intelligent people love to listen to another intelligent person describe a thing they're interested in. Not yeah. just a thing they were assigned, but a thing they really want to talk about, right? Yeah. So I don't care. It's the phone it's read the phone book to me experience. Mm-hmm. So I don't mind when he just deep dives into whatever it's gonna be. I agree. But it's- but 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 here he's deep diving into something that a good base, a good amount of his base would know already. And that's a real sticky widget because it's like, how do you, I don't know the right answer to it, but I'm not sure that Reem D was the right answer in the way he spends a lot of time setting up how you navigate his version of Warcraft. Because he explains things that almost every, like, like mainstream reader already understands about that. Or maybe not like the, that, you know, Ben Ankle, West Kansas, you know, car, car sales person who never touches fantasy in any form. But like most of his readers would already know everything you need to know about how World of Warcraft works. And yeah. he spends chapters after chapter, you know, explaining those nuances. And not in a way because it's specifically important to the narrative. He's just, he said, I'm going to recreate this. I'm going to deep dive and say, this is how I would generate this. And here we go. <laughs> you know? Yes. So I don't know. I don't understand that. It's like he doesn't, he doesn't edit himself in that way, thinking about his audience. No, but 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 I I no because I think he's writing for himself, not for his audience. Mm. Absolutely. I true. think I, and I and and so to me, I think he he to me, he's one of these writers that gets really passionate about topics. I and love then, that, yes. Right? And then he goes off the fucking deep end and, Which then, is amazing. and then he I writes love it. and then he writes about what he needs to write about to communicate what he's learned. Right yeah, or what he sees or the, what it, the deep the deep research he does on everything, right? Edit them, right? <laughs> Which I just applaud him for writing, 
right? This interplanetary comparative quantum mechanics study, right? And, and what is the root of mathematics? What is the root of philosophy? What is the root of communication? And then tying it down to quantum mechanic level understanding. I mean, no fucking buddy else would ever write anything yes, about that. Yes, yes, right? yes. And, and if and you read wrote, Snow Crash, you see that he would get to Anathem. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so, why don't you give us a basic wait, plot wait, wait, summary wait, wait, or something? Yeah, before we go, uh, I just uh, typed up, uh, I went to his page and looked up fail, Fall or Dodge in Hell. Yes. And it's very apt that we're starting with uh, Remedy because this is a sequel to Remedy. No! Yes. Oh, so, oh, I'm so stoked. I'm so stoked because I want to see these characters again so much. Right? Oh, my so God. So the Dodge Fourth Rest. Oh, my God. Right? Read it. And so, so he's in his middle years. Uh, he's managing many business interests and spending time with his beloved niece, Zula, and her young daughter, Sophia. <gasps> and, right? And then on a beautiful autumn day, he undergoes a routine medical procedure. Something goes wrong, and he's pronounced brain dead and put on life support. And so he, his will required that his body be given to a cryonics company now owned by enigmatic tech entrepreneur Elmo Shepard. Oh, fuck. And uh, so they give the body to Elmo. Elmo takes a scan of his brain. And uh, as time goes on, uh, you know, assuming that the data corruption and data uploading, everything else is up to the same level, is that it's turned, his brain is turned back on. And, uh, and it's called in the eternal afterlife called the bit world, <laughs> <laughs> in, which, in which humans continue to exist as digital souls. Um, He's going and straight a, back to the source, isn't he? Yep. But this brave new immortal world is not the utopia it might seem. Everyone's not, black and not, white. Not. <laughs> oh, right. I'm so down. All right. So you so okay, so with Reemby, give up give up I don't know, if you can do the the one minute summary of oh, the main beats. Boy. A one minute summary of Reemby. Well, I'm so, just saying, because we need yeah. a framework for people who maybe are choosing to ruin the book by listening to this who haven't actually read it. Yeah, yeah. So it so the, the, the critical the core structure of it is this family that has a lot of issues and it's detailing uh it's called the fourth rest family and so richard dodge fourth rest is the second of the three sons and zula is his adopted eretrian daughter who is uh richard's niece who is his brother right right yes the child um, of several tragedies in a in sequence yes right and so um uh, grew richard, up in a cave you know yeah adopted by the family that her adopted parents are you know, or her adopted mother is yeah, killed. Is it, yeah, and, and all that. It's it's all a, a big, you know. But the fourth rests are this. You're more you're more in touch with this, having not grown up in California. But they are this quintessential American family where it is neck deep in rural, traditional American guns. Go uh, well, most uh, of it is, uh, but then you have that. There's they are survivalist ranchers. Survivalist ranchers, and that which yes. is a lot of the imagery of the modern America that's not the coastal Americas, right? Right. This is the this is the this is the glamorized version of the libertarian dream. It's this idea yeah, that they are. I got my guns and my compound, and I'm hiding out, and I'm I got a vegan garden, and you leave me alone, and everything's going to be fine, right? Yeah. And yeah. Dodge Fortherast has spun off from that family, and he's had his whole other life. Right. And he's the but, black so, sheep of the family who's also Richard, the most successful one. Right. Richard's the black sheep of the family, which is which makes it even more ironic that he has a, uh, the... Yes, <laughs> a the Richard daughter. daughter, yes. Yeah. And so, but Richard, so let's see, they introduce him that he owns this cat skiing resort, right? Yes. In British Columbia. 
He's got a he used to be a marijuana smuggler through British Columbia. So that's really important because he knows the back mountain paths between the United States and British Columbia a lot, which is very important later in the novel, right? Right, right. But what he's most known for uh, and what he has become famous and independently wealthy for, which is another important element, mm -hmm. he founded a company that made the uh, this massively multiplayer online role-playing game called Terrain. Terrain. With terrain, which seems, you know, both uh, uh, an oxymoron on the geographical term for topic. Yes topography right yes but also kind of a throwback to tapau yes right? Which and I... all of those like uh <laughs> fake elven names right yes and what was also great is that one of his co-founders that he has this very uh acrimonious relationship with he was a really obese dude oh these guys that, are so amazing that was an rpg and so the the, the level of detail that he goes into and like okay so i eat a lot of pizza i play a lot of role-playing games but if i had a treadmill and i could walk I would lose all the weight. And then he's there a Skeletor. He right, he's Skeletor. Right? <laughs> wait, wait, I got to stop you because we got to go in deep. I mean, this is going to be a tangential conversation. Honestly, it's you have to have read the book to follow this. But yeah, uh, there's some there's some stuff here that I absolutely love that is referential to Stevenson World. Yes. Right? He says, Fourthrast says, Dodge, Dodge Fourthrast, who's named after the Dodge truck that he was driving when he was mm -hmm. younger but also relates to his nom related experiences and his time up in canada and all this other stuff which they don't really reference but so yeah so he says that he created t-rain as a cheap ass knockoff of google earth which was a knockoff of an old sci-fi book and google <laughs> earth co-founder one of the two co-founders has cited snow crash as the inspiration for google earth because yeah. of Earth in Snow Crash. Yes. So I thought that was fucking great. And the other thing I loved was that Avatars is an is a name that was not he didn't invent it, but he he mainstreamed the use of the word avatar, the Hindi word avatar, as your create your character in a game that you are you are controlling. Mm -hmm. And James Cameron took Avatar and mutated into a bunch of blue elves running through the jungles, and then his main elven species in this book are blue skinned elves i mean i just like i couldn't get over this man i was reading this going like what or i wasn't i was listening saying what <laughs> all right no, so it's, anyway. it, it's beyond it's beyond the fourth wall we're now like at sixth wall of it, is it is nuts it is nuts sometimes he's barking right? he's just talking to you through the speakers of your car right yeah no it's just but but it shows you well, to me, it's just like the 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 comics realm, like yeah. in the Marvel folks and the fanboys and the fan people. Let's just call it fan people instead of not fanboys. The um, it's such a small world relative to the global population, right? Yeah, and they all understand the nuance. Right. They all get the 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 little hidden, you know, handoffs to it, right? And Captain right. Marvel, I guess Kevin Smith is you know in there and is a blubbering right. idiot on Instagram effort, but. By the way, your, these, your reference your reference to fanboys. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that within an hour of that movie being a formally released, that all those trolls <laughs> went on there and tried to give it one star Metacritic reviews, and then it still exploded at the box office? I mean, thank God that there's more people than those books, oh, um, right? But this is but this is a world where the world of Warcraft has peaked in the way that like Fortnite has peaked because right. we. I mean, for, World of Warcraft was paid, played by millions and millions and millions of people for years, but it didn't yep. hit public consciousness the way Fortnite has, right? 
Like there are yeah. people, there are there are pe- mainstream people who never play a video game and never have any, they never touch fantasy in any way, and they don't understand Fortnite because I don't even fucking understand Fortnite, but they know it exists. I don't and know the kids are playing, and it's probably not a good idea, right? This is a world where that Fortnite level fandom has translated to Disney style merchandising, right? There's theme parks, and you know, yeah, like yeah. it's in the mainstream. Yeah, but, but to me, I, I think the Fortnite thing is is kind of the, the that generation's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you're right. It totally right? is. And, it's, and dun- terrain... it's that generation's Dungeons and Dragons where everybody is stoned and just fucking around, right? Yeah. But I mean, I, I mean, I went to Dragon Con a couple of times, and that's the same thing. I mean, yeah. that, that's what happens, right? Yeah. And Gary Gygax, R.I.P. Um, you know, all these all these gaming phenomenon seem to build off of each other, and you always think you can't top it, and then of course everybody does. And then Post Human, the RPG from Third Rail Design Lab, comes out, and it changes everything. It's a sea change. It's a sea change for gaming when there's riptides in the water. Indeed. You get ready. We get ready, all of you. But, uh, you heard it here first. The um, but the other thing that I found compelling about Remedy is that it also presaged the whole kind of Bitcoin cryptocurrency crossover yes. stuff yes. as well, right? Yes, because there were these gold farmers, right? And so now right. we have Bit farmers, right? Bitcoin farmers, cryptocurrency, right? And so in terrain, you would build up these points, you would build up these credits, and then there is this uh, backwater currency exchange where you could convert the in-game currency to actual hard currency. And this was all about them breaching, because in this world, World of Warcraft did exist, but they realized that the next level shit was to get China involved. And they said the only way they're going to make this work is to monetize it. And the only way to make that work was to make it in in a way that these kids could get out of the the crypto farming, uh, you know, the, the, the crypto farming scheme where you're sitting in a room where someone else is your master and put it in the hands of individual crypto farmers and make it so right. that they can make money at a temporary machine doing what they're doing and you run bots to do that for you, right? And so yeah. you have a Ponzi well, it, scheme. You have a Ponzi scheme of, of, of sub-avatars doing your work for you. And I think that's key. That's key, though. Yeah, yeah. It, it is key because, because that sets up the whole uh, the whole drama with Zula and her boyfriend Peter, right? No, but in the real so, world, cryptocurrency, oh, yeah. uh, gold farming has been limited to the fact that it's run like the mafia. There are elite, there are people running rooms full of these teenagers doing this, and they get very little for what they're doing. And in his interpretation, anybody can be doing this. And the more experienced you are, the more Ponzi that you've made your your little system. But you don't need to be under the boot heels of a project manager that's running 100 of a russian oligarch right. yeah, a russian well, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. but yeah. i mean i think that was interesting that's how you get to like yeah, these, yeah. these entrepreneurs like marlin right right yep marlin has no master he exactly. they, these guys are like independent entrepreneurs doing this which was to me key anyway go on all right sorry i don't know but Again, to me, it was it was Neil Stevenson being uh, ahead of the curve and and well, at least or maybe just seeing things in a different way, right? But the whole seminal event that starts the book off is a family reunion in British Columbia, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, oh, no, key it, point: yeah, re- Fourthrast buys the ammo, not the guns. Not he doesn't the guns, have the right? guns, but he buys the ammo, which is thematically important. Yeah, because right. he doesn't want to because he creates people. Yeah, and he creates the framework for the things that are happening without actually causing the things that are happening, or so he thinks. Right, right. 
right? And I think at the end of the book, he realized that the cause and effect um, are as a much finer line than one would want. Yes. Right. But let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, right. Don't get ahead of yourself, Wayne. There's a there's a family. Stevenson yourself right now. I know. Oh my gosh. For, um, for readers, for listeners who don't understand, Blake is infamous among his peers because he has a YouTube video and <laughs> that's his pivotal line. Let's not, let's get, not ourselves. get ourselves. All right, go on. Yeah. So at the family reunion, uh, Zula comes up with her boyfriend Peter. Um, Peter. Right, where uh, and it's this is a place where Richard used to run drugs from U.S. Canada, right? Okay. Um, and so Peter is a loser. Uh, well, he's he, like he's he's an on the spectrum dot com kid, right? He's yeah. made his money. No, but, but yes, but I mean he's he's got these delusional aspirations and is just a shit poor manager of himself and resources. He's and a he proto, he's a proto yeah. he's a proto millennial. That's what Stevenson's doing, right? No, no. So, so to me, no. He's a proto tech boy, yeah. or even worse, a proto Andrew Shkreli. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right, 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 right. That he's just—he's he no Andrew moral compass, and, right? And and he's and he's uh, every, the world is his oyster, and he doesn't understand it. But he's no, interested but, in the fact that he was—he is—he sees very early that Peter is on the spectrum because you see how well he's rapidly adapting to understand how to load a load a magazine and and fire a weapon that he's never fired before but at the same yeah, time yeah. he doesn't have the basic appreciation for safety and everything else and that's what's important about why is it that he has all this shit in his warehouse right right well because he bought another, it online right yeah it's another it's another point of differentiation that he's not a true believer mm-hmm. he's an opportunist yes right? or he sees the surface the surface appeal to things not the my mother was a farm girl, and we've talked about this before. Her whole family had guns, and they cleaned them at the table, and they dressed whatever. They put them together, oh, yeah. and they put them back in the cabinet, and they all had deep training in the respect and the you know traditions and how you use a weapon and how you keep it clean and 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 when you use it, when you don't, and it's a tool and all this stuff. And they would take they have great uh, reverence for or great respect for the severity of it. And yes. the problems we have today are the people who are not from that generation, right? It's not exactly. the, it's really not the open carry guys walking around in Arkansas, to be honest, right? It's the, it's the people in the urban centers who bought it because it's cool, and then, you know, yeah, and then they become unhinged, yeah, yeah. and then, yeah, <laughs> right. or, or shoot up their family because they we're getting political. The point is, he's that guy, right? He bought a high-powered military rifle, and he has it in his house when he doesn't have the historical background in his family to respect the weapon the way it should be yeah no yeah to him it's just another tool to show off his manliness right it's no different than his uh the size his, of his laptop yeah his snowboard right yeah yeah and so this guy uh decides to sell a database of stolen credit card numbers to a very shady contact um and selling then, it to the russian mob selling the russian mob and of course this transaction um uh, results in a ransomware virus that is called RIMD, right? And it affects the players of T-Rain by encrypting any of these uh, seemingly valuable files and extorting in-game gold in exchange for a key to decrypt. So it's basically that that hijack, uh, we're going to encrypt all your data, you can't access this until you pay us a ransom. Right. It's it's the precursor to the, we've locked your computer, <clears throat> or we've locked the DHS, pay us 
you know, $10,000 or we will not, it will never give you the keys right. to unlock it. Right. But the right. key is you're supposed to go into T-Rain. You're supposed to deposit huge sums of money on some weird remote mountain pass and then leave. And then you, and then you're unlocked. And so right. as right. this virus spreads, everybody's supposedly doing this, just dropping huge right. sunk, well, chunks of cash into the mountains. And of course, because the Russian mob and other mobs have been using this system to launder money. It's unavoidable that they're going to encringe on some business interests of folks that they would really rather not encringe upon. Yes. And so Peter and Zula and uh, and the the middleman that tried to be the handoff between uh, the the two brokers <laughs> that the Russian mob hunts them down, <clears throat> and they, and believe it or not, if you've been paying attention to current events, you'd be surprised to know that the Russian mob are very IT savvy. Yes. And uh, they track these guys down, these hapless idiots <laughs> in Seattle. And um, God, the, I the, love the detail of this. Right. What and wires then, they cut and how they go about going. It's a warehouse. Yeah. It's a warehouse outside of Seattle, just outside of Seattle, right? And yeah, they've. Yeah, no. Yeah. But, but as he's describing this, right? And because um, uh, Stevenson is from the Northwest, right? The, a lot of the geography and situations that he describes. <clears throat> me having lived in the Puget Sound area for 10 years, when he's describing that warehouse, I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, I convinced myself that I've been to a warehouse party for being in that rave, right? Yeah. I was there. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know where the router is. <laughs> yeah, I know where this is. I've seen it. It's in my head. <laughs> and it's, a, it's yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. So, so, anyway, the Russian mob comes down and cracks him down. Um, and uh, there's a gangster called Ivanov, of course. And, uh, like, basically tries to emulate killing off this middleman and takes Peter and Zula hostage. And his problem right? is that he has spent a lot of money that's not his. Oh, he's leveraged out to the hill to be right. the way worse people. He, he's, right? he, is, he is a money manager for one of these funds that a bunch of mob dons have paid into. And he yeah. thought he could make get rich quick by taking someone else's money. Sounds familiar. Taking someone mm-hmm. else's money. Do a little scam, make a bunch of money off of it, and then he'll be rich off of the money that the rest of the mob has already invested. And, and so he, it's gone terribly wrong, and now he's screwed because he's at risk of being exposed. Right, and it, it gets even worse because the the Ivanov <laughs> uh, decides to kill Peter, and also another important individual in in setting off the the debacle that happens. Uh, he kills off Abdallah Jones, who is the head of an Islamist cell, what? Well, who's well, by the MI6. Yeah. Well, to well, cover okay, his tracks. Wait. To cover his tracks. Mm, okay, so, wait, so he, so first of all, they raid Peter's house. They kidnap Zula, who was only there to collect yes. her shit. Because when she found out what Peter did, she's like, you put my whole family at risk. Fuck you, we're over. So she just went back right. to get her stuff, and she gets caught up in this. Right. And she's the only one who really understands <clears throat> the severity of it. Right, and they take everybody to Xiamen yeah. in China. Yeah, basically, she's right. yeah she's onboarded onto a onto a private jet that is you know greasy palmed its way out of U.S. airspace and sent to Xiamen. And yeah, yeah, and what's key there is that Ivanov seems like a major player because he's got a private jet and he's got this army of dudes in tracksuits and it's this whole Russian mob thing but as they as they as they quickly reveal he's actually really overextended 
he contracted yes. out all that labor. He basically took this private jet, and he's running way loose of what he's supposed to be doing. He's a total loose unit. And his main henchman, Sokolov, suspects that he had micro micro uh, uh, stro micro strokes, and he was losing. He's off the deep end, right? And yeah, he's kind of no, trapped. He's like, what am I supposed yeah. to do? And Sokolov, just so everybody knows, is a former Spetsnaz. Oh, yes. Uh, security consultant that was hired by Ivanov, right? Like an amazing so, character. Yeah. And so they, they decide to raid the gold farming team that is composed of all these young Chinese men that are controlled by Peter and Zula. Well, <laughs> the, key, Zula, the key is everything's locked up by Rimdi. The laptop that had yeah. the software that was this bunch of credit card accounts or whatever else that was being sold to the mob was corrupted by Rimdi. So now they're off to okay. find the writer of Rimdi and get the fucking keys so they can get their money. That's the plan. Reset, hit the reset the button. Yeah. But go to China. Just go to China right. and find the, find the writer of a code and give, get our money back. That's the plan. And when they do that, and when they do that, and it's led by Sokolov, um, Zula misdirects them into a random apartment, which is housing Islamic terrorists. <laughs> right. She she has this right. crisis of conscience because she knows if she figures out where the likely so it's a really involved thing, but they, she figures out that she knows where it's likely that the Chinese hackers are living. And so she, at the last minute, faints and sends all the Russians to one floor up, which unfortunately happens to be the home base of a Welsh-born jihadist. Of a, of a Jones, yes. yes. And who's got a cadre of bombers and terrorists. Abdullah Jones. Yes, Abdullah yes, Jones. yes, yes. And so... Explosions, excitement, Explosions. hanging off, hanging and, and off and ropes, and then, and then, and then the important handoff here, and this is uh, critical, is that when they do that and they go into the Islamist cell and kill everybody, um, there's been a MI6 agent that's been looking after Abdullah Jones and trying to gather intelligence on them, so that they can kill him. Yeah, so right? she's in an apartment. She's in an apartment across the street. Watching right. this, and, and she's sort of marginalized, right? She's just kind of off right. on fringe, managing cameras and stuff. Well, the, they, the, the MI6 kind of just thrown her to the wolves and kind of done yeah. those. Yeah, you, you're because she had a fixation on Abdullah Jones, and no one else believed, right? right. That right. he he felt that she was tuned into Abdullah, right. Right. in a way that no one did. Everybody else, the completely gave up on her, <clears throat> and so she's watching this go down. Uh, on the on the building across, and what's also fascinating is that when Stevenson's describing this, even though they're just coordinating all the assaults on this one room to try and get the what they think is the Chinese coders for uh, all the gold currency exchange, and they're killing off all these the Sarasel, the damage to the building is so strong that it starts messing with the Chinese coders, and then they have to run away as well. It's, <laughs> and the thing is, if you've been to Southeast Asia or China. Either way, you've been to China, I've been to Southeast Asia. You can visualize this alley, right? Where there's strings of laundry going across. And there's like crazy loops of data cable that are just strung loose. And there's all this stuff. It's a lot of attention. There's at least 20 pages about cabling, right? Mm -hmm. Like everything about this scenario is so vivid if you've ever been there. You can see it so clearly, this environment, that if you were to, if you were to juxtapose this by 100 years... It's Indiana Jones, you know, jumping off vines and swinging through the jungle and yes. jumping onto a thing and grabbing an idol. But it's Shaman. It's like it's right. so clear. 
Dr. Jones. Anyway, yeah. sorry. So, so anyway, so, so uh, Ivanov, yeah. Ivanov <clears throat> murders Peter, and Abdallah Jones assassinates uh, kills Ivanov, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the gold farmers flee the building, right? And uh, Jones also proceeds to flee, but somehow, and I forget the exact sequence here. He comes he down into the basement. Zula as it goes. He comes down to the basement in like the charging cell and he captures Zula. He sees that Zula and Peter had been connected together. Right, but Peter's dead. And Peter's and dead, then so he, he takes Zula yeah. hostage. And what's, what's, <laughs> what's interesting about this is that Zula's story, on the face of it, is another one of these uh, women in peril stories. And yet this woman who has no experience in any of this other than the fact that she grew up in a cave in Eritrea and then was adopted by a survivalist fam survivalist family in the in in America so she really knows how to take care of herself but she doesn't look like it right and, and so she's, she's got the shock of kinky hair and she's just kind of yeah. looks like a you know like a nerd and yet she's got this whole background this hard background that is she's not a hard character but she's a resilient character. And it's a really mm -hmm. interesting type of female protagonist because this is one of two ki major kidnappings in the book for her. She spends the entire yes. book contained, capt yes. captured by other people who don't understand, to some degree understand. Paula <clears throat> Jones knows how dangerous she is. But still, she spends the entire book captured and is finding one way or the other to assess, the, assess her odds and figure out the right way out. But so, and so to me, I take it even one step further. Even though she's kidnapped, ostensibly by others, she is the most pivotal character in deciding outcomes throughout the book. She has the most agency of right? anyone in that book. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So. So. So he takes. So back to the plane. She. He takes her. On an attempt to get back to the west. Yep, yeah. and that goes horribly awry. So you have, you have basically four main threads, right? You have right. Zula and Jones as they're fleeing from the scene. You have Olivia, the MI6 agent, and Sokolov. So um, Sokolov ends up pairing up with Olivia. We, you know, right, because they're trying to get out of China yeah, because right. their cover's been blown. and they're going which, to get was, which was fascinating because that's how I think. I love to put characters in scenarios and wondering right. logistically how they would get out. And in movies, it's always like they're on a random plane. They figured it out. Yeah. But in this yeah. book, it's like, how the hell do you get out of China when you don't have a passport? Right? It, yeah, you don't have... It's you have all about movie. passports in this book. Yeah. Well, because it is. Right, it totally is. And how does a plane get to the United States? Not the take off and throw it into a building, but how does a plane get from another country to the United States without being detected? And that's and a shot whole down. thing. And then, and then six weeks after the fact, how are you trying to figure out where it went and predict the likelihood of what they would do based on what your, your vague familiarity with the way the guy thinks? And so hmm. Abdullah Jones has figured out a way to take the formerly even off uh, managed Russian plane, get it to America with the attempt, with the intent to do a major uh, terrorist act while he's in America. Whereas mm -hmm. the Olivia and Sokolov team are several weeks behind trying to catch up. He's got Zula. And then fourth Rast is way off the back, just finding out that she's been kidnapped in the first place and well, is working from a huge amount of empty data, right? Yeah, because Zula, Zula finally tells uh, about her relationship to Richard to Abdallah to keep her alive. Right, right. Starts, so she sells right out Richard yeah. to Abdallah right. to keep her alive, which now and so makes... They aim, and, and then they aim to go to Richard's resort, 
and he used Zula's leverage to gain his assistant crossing into Idaho. And this is interesting because when you're reading it, you're thinking you want her to be altruistic. You're like, well, she's clearly got a plan. No, she. it was desperate measures, and she sold out Richard and then was like, fuck, I sold out my whole family. I've guaranteed my whole family's going to die because of some stupid shit that Peter got me into, right? That guilt oh. is profound. It wasn't a plan. She didn't have a sneak, a secret weapon there. She sold him out out of desperation and then was trying to figure out how to walk it back. But she, but she improvised. And I thought that was very interesting because Abdullah Jones is walking into the classic, they know the terrain, right? Mm-hmm. This is a bunch of Afghanistan-trained terrorists who know all about survivalist stuff, but they don't know this particular terrain and they don't know this. And it's interesting to watch how Jones uses Google Maps and shit to figure out where he is, to figure out what's likely to be the case about the secret pathway in from Canada to the United States. He's using the same tools. These right. proto, proto tools, right, that Stevenson was so into. So anyway, that was great. Right, and, and then and then we kind of gloss over Sangor and Marlin. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll do that. But Sokolov, back to Sokolov. He's trying to kill Jones and save Zula, finds Olivia, right? And uh, they decide that <laughs> they found Olivia's address, goes back to find her, uh, gets her, and then they decide to swim to Taiwan. Oh, Jesus uh, <laughs> right? This was so, so they can deep. get out and get on a plane, right? 80 pages about uh, pure, like, jutting bits of wood from former piers sticking out of the water and it's foggy and it's like it's so it's so intensely yeah. realized this whole approach i'm like he must have been in, out there on a zodiac trying to do this right yeah. and so i i don't want to get too much into the sub characters beyond that because it will be here for yeah, there's hours a lot of stuff but but yeah that they they so they we basically get um, Sokolov and Olivia back to the United States after they make a connection to the Philippines, right? And meanwhile, in, in all of this, Richard is trying to figure out what the hell is going on with what this destroyed his game, right? He finds the um, guy. He finds the guy that's been. He figures out and identifies the guy that's doing the Reem D virus, right? And he comes down with his mega character, captures him, and says, "What the fuck?" and figures out that he's paired up with Zula in some crazy real-world conspiracy, and he's like, what the shit? And the entire time he's doing this, he's in his ski compound that's closed mm-hmm. for, you know, it has no people there at that time. It's closed, and he's by himself having, and there's absolutely no, and because of the nature of how he communicates and what he's doing and being in the net for 12 hours a day or whatever it is, He's completely divorced from the real world at the same time that these terrorists are coming to his ski compound, his chalet, to capture him, to coerce him into taking him down into whoops, taking him down into the United States. It yeah. was so like proto, you know, the the criticisms of gamers that they don't know what what's happening in the real world. Like he never could know that. But it was so yeah. interesting to think that he was like, you know. Hey, if someone's at the door, I'll be right back. <laughs> right. Know, terrorists are at the door. What the fuck, man? And, but, and, and then there's also the, the whole nuance with what is going on in terrain. Right. 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 This. And so, and so the, the, the whole good versus evil debate inside of it and yes. finding out that there's actually a, a war realignment going on in the game that is basically originating from a Cambridge 
professor right really high <laughs> that was actually fascinating stuff but the idea was that he told him influence the game yep. allow me to do a thing and they're like what I could never right. just do it give me this and then, you know, right push and then, push yeah. this direction i needed to you know well what is good and evil in a virtual world right, right. and it plays out right. in the in, browns in, right the brown and you know all the all the all the neutral colors of being good versus evil, and it just kind of shows the color palette as and the line between good and evil just really getting you know obfuscated by you know yeah. irrelevance. Uh, but it was also it was I also found it interesting that Stevenson in his head played out this this war of realignment between a Cambridge Don who's sending out right. sci-fi uh, remind you of anybody in British sci-fi the. Yes. the <clears throat> Uh, and then there's this other uh, pulp uh, hero that's been uh, cranking stuff out. That's more of the. <laughs> I just love. I just Volumes love poorly like, regarded fantasy, right? It's I just a- love like uh, um, locking yourself up on the Isle of Man. <laughs> like, just like yes. all of that imagery was just hilarious to me. Well, so in, in the end, end, yeah. So, so then in the end, so in, so in the end, you have this thing where. They use Reem, they use T Rain to figure out where people are and communicate with people around the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, so the game using the game the world, to right? cross over to the real world. Then they, so then Abdullah Jones works his way in this really elaborate thing. But they eventually, it's a really interesting caravan and this whole thing about all the logistics of being unseen in America's. Anyway, this really interesting. And then they get, end up getting to the fourth rest, not from the chalet. And then they get down to the, uh, one of the other, the youngest brother who happens to be one of the radical survivalists, right? Jake. Right. Jake. He yeah. drinks his own Those piss, drinks his own piss kind of guy. Yeah. Super nice yeah, guy. Yeah. Looks like John Denver, AK 47. Right. And so then, well, the terrorist group has forked. And they've gone down, they do a terrorist attack at the border to, as a decoy, and they're going down and coming at the younger fourth rest's compound. Josh, the other half Jay, is Jay. coming over the mountains doing the original pass that dodged it. And and there's this whole other thing, and there's other characters and everything else, but, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on a little bit. But in the end, you have a, basically a, a compound shootout like Waco, right? But it goes the other direction, and in the mm-hmm. end, this survivalist, this survivalist rural family takes out an international terrorist, and they don't even know the severity at the time of what it is they're doing. They just know someone's raiding them, and they have a whole system, mm-hmm. right? The whole system that's protecting them from the government <laughs> ends up, you know, pretty much saving the Western Hemisphere, right? I mean, it's a huge, or the Northern Hemisphere, the Western world. It's it's pretty fascinating how it resolves. To them, it's like get the fuck off my land. But the ramifications are severe. Yeah. So, okay. So, thoughts. so Zula escapes. Zula escapes. Yes. Zula escapes. Right. Richard kills Abdullah Jones, right? And Richard's oldest brother John is killed during the firefight. Poor John. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so then, then you have basically Zula and Songor, Olivia and Sokolov, and then the, the other folks we didn't talk about, Seamus and uh, Yuzia. Uh, all going off and happy while Richard did, <laughs> is left with the Dodge is left dealing with the guilt of like <laughs> all, all this stuff that like, happened around like, him. If I just never would have invented terrain or, yeah. 
I was never a marijuana smuggler if I would have just chosen. or or and there's like many many uh, stabs at the concept of Wikipedia, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, like Fortherass yeah. like, whole thing Dodge's the whole thing is that people have written Wikipedia stuff about him that is partially true and partly not, but has built up his mystique. You know, it's, it's the, what I think Stevenson is latching onto is the idea that fans create reality, right? And that's mm-hmm. the biggest criticism of Wikipedia. For all the positives of Wikipedia, of which there are many, it's that anybody can add to it. And so the whole thing about Wikipedia is it depends upon enough people having enough resources to counteract the bias and try to find some equilibrium. And so the whole thing here is he's constantly complaining that everyone has this idea of him based on what Wikipedia says about him, mm-hmm. which is used by Abdullah Jones and everything to find him. To find him. And yes. everything. And in his mind, it's like 90% of that is bullshit anyway. Just leave me alone. Right? And so Stevenson, I feel like, is targeting that. He's targeting the idea that anybody can fuck up anything because of the the theoretical freedom of the internet, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, anytime they want. Yeah, right. When you consider that his first opus was about people who were so early on the homesteader route that they could plant a flag in the proto-internet and be gods in Snow Crash's world, right? So, like, he's mm-hmm. gone full circle. He's gone around and said, you know, actually, you know, uh, fans who write whatever they want on the internet can cause real problems. Yeah. So, anyway, all right. So, fascinating book. There you I go. Lo- yeah. I loved it to fucking death. It was 38 hours and 36 hours long. It's a lot of commuting time. I listened to it in the truck. I listened to it in on the bike. I've, descent- I've descended... Perilously down mountain passes, listening to this. <laughs> hey, what happened to your? Uh, I can't see you. No, I'm still there. I'm still there. Yeah, I just stopped the camera because you're breaking up a little bit. Okay, so now I see a micro icon, little avatar, so to speak, of Blake, and he looks handsome. And it's a it's a gout, head. gout free. So I have some thoughts, dude. Here's the notes that I wrote down. Are you ready? Are you ready for my notes? I am ready for your notes. Because I have thoughts, and consider that this is the first book that we're going to talk about. So these are my scalpy scribbles, so to speak. So the first thing I have to write down here is that um, I think it's interesting, and it's not the first book he's had this problem, but it's interesting how anachronistic Stevenson is. So he, he writes about things in a way that dates those things in a, and if you compare it to like Gibson for example which i think is his best contemporary corollary right you can read count zero for example and it reads as a contemporary piece of work but when you read his work he references uh you know sort of technological mechanisms or some, things that make it dated and i find that strange because i know that he's writing a He's writing a, a sort of an alternate universe in his books, but it's still, you know, it's still interesting. But it, uh, so, so th- that's interesting though because I I take it a different way. I think he's putting a timestamp on things. I don't think he's making uh, them outdated. I don't think he's going old timey obsoletism on it. Right? I think he's just trying to put it in context and acknowledging that. Things change over time, and what he's already writing about is going to be a little bit outdated by the time anybody reads it. Yeah, but but 
if you compare it to Gibson, sure, he's using keyboards and whatever else, but Gibson does a lot to dodge the interface. He talks about the keyboard, but otherwise it's jet right in and just deal with the abstracts of the virtual world. Yeah. Does, Stevenson does jack specifically in, does jack in or jack out, right? Jack yeah. in, jack out. Put the coax. And with Cyberpunk, 80s Cyberpunk is coax, right? It's like, vroom, yeah, put it in there, right? It's it's like, you know, 10 millimeters <laughs> wide. Anyway. Well, it's an RS-232. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. But, yeah. So so with, with, with Stevenson, I'm maddened by how dated some of the references are when I think I imagine him writing it. And I wonder, like, why does he say... Like, it astonished. This is what I wrote down. Like, what the fuck? He talks about PDAs, okay? This is not a book that's set in 1990. This is a book that's set in some vague near future slash semi-contemporary. PDA hasn't been a thing since 1990, 1995, right? The Palm Pilot. But but maybe he thinks it should. And maybe it's creating that divergence from reality that allows people to objectify it, right? And wall it off. And I chose that to be the route. I, I imagine this was a splinter it's a sliding door and this is where we are but yeah. like it would sit every Everybody's time he said looking at their they're, blackberries. Like they're looking at their pda <laughs> when he says they're looking at their pda i get really frustrated because you know the ipad was invented in fucking 2001 right like it was invented in 1969 but that's so maybe, maybe don't wave your finger into. at me Maybe what you're tapping into is his Apple uh, bias, right? Maybe he just fucking hates the iPhone and the iPad and everything Incorrect. else. Incorrect. He defined <laughs> the device on which something is happening instead of de- defining the operation of the device. And that's what I'm talking about. You can say right. someone has a PDA. And PDA means Palm Pilots and similar devices that were semi-network connected and that are entirely about being a personal like a little mini version of Microsoft Office. Microsoft Office, And instead, he could say they were using something, a slate or whatever they want to call it, and saying they're interfacing the Internet through a Palm device or whatever. He oh, what, what specifically it, what describes it, what a device. What is it in the Expanse that they, that they use, right? They don't call it a PDA. What, what is it in the Expanse that they, they use it um... Everybody's keyboard. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But something we're like super that. fans, but I don't fucking right. remember, yeah. We don't but have that, but yeah. you know what I'm saying, though. The specific choice of how he described it was anachronistic. And I thought that was interesting because he's so smart. <clears throat> this guy is so smart. He he did it deliberately, but I don't know why he did it. He's not... It didn't go over his head. It's not like he... When he was writing Reem D, it's not like he was saying, well, clearly everybody knows what a PDA is. Like, he doesn't... <laughs> like, he chose to write PDA, right? And that, that tripped me out. Another thing was... He spends all this time. But is, is that really about him or is it more about you? It's about him. So, <laughs> also, he spends scores of pages. Hand terminals. It's just a hand terminal. So, why? Well, that's why what I'm why, saying. Why would you say PDA instead of hand terminal? Or why wouldn't you say PDA instead of a digital interface device or some other thing? Or like the smart play is you give it another name. Blackberry. Maybe he still saw colder than Blackberry. Maybe that's okay. it. Well, just wait till we get the snow crash. Because. Snow Crash is another example where he was so ahead of the curve and so behind it at the same time. All right, so another thing I wrote down was he spent scores of pages writing about World of Warcraft, the essential basics of hacking, the essential basics of how digital technology works, and the essential basics of why humans like gaming. And it's his thing where he dives into a thing, and I believe he deliberately 
creates a white space for himself. Like I think he he says, I'm going to just create this pocket universe where this is a thing that I've created. I've invented this. I'm discovering this. I'm going to describe it. And I'm down with that, except for I feel like there's a nuanced way in which you can describe a thing that's familiar, but in an alien context, and then it's more impactful. And he describes a thing in familiar context, which makes it feel dated. In other words, but in a different outcome, in a different reality, right? In, 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 for example, from Snowcrash, because remember, I read Snowcrash right after Reemdy again. So, so he describes interface. Like, he'll be like, I press the enter key, and then I press the shift lock key. You know, like, that kind of stuff is very, very anachronistic, which it didn't need to be. Because really, all he's really trying to message is, I gestured through some sort of interface device to tell the thing, virtual thing, what I wanted to do. And by being so detailed about something contemporary, it dates the thing. And Snow Crash was really fucking challenging for me in that sense because rereading it in 2019, it fucking, or 2000, late 2018, it was really hard. Because like they're basically waving Bernoulli discs at each other. And it's like, like <laughs> you didn't need to do that. All right, another but, thing. Okay, no, no, I, so I, I get that. But to me... That's what makes it great. No, but think it, about the choice, it, though. No, but wait, 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 wait. Because you can visualize yourself doing those things. Yeah, right? I just, know that. Just, but you don't need to. Not... When you watch Star Trek The Next in Generation. World, in your world, in your world. No, no. In, when you watch Next Generation, right? They made the huge the huge design upgrade where everything is these, like, touch screens and everything is, like, these very, various, you know, uh, variations of of earth tones on the screen and they just and they just tap the things and things happen and the computers talk to them and everything else they were taking interface ideas and extrapolating them and sure to some degree it's going to be dated because they're touching a thing versus you know something you know in a hologram or something else or mind control but they have to they have to present something in a way that they convey it to the audience they need some mechanism to describe it to the audience. Right. Here, right. he described existing technology instead of a more abstract technology that allows you to imagine it and make it something more fantastical for yourself. But but so to me, that comes back to his, stim, his, his steampunk roots. And you you talked about That's the true. Diamond Age. And That's true. Right? And, and so anachronism, right, as a vehicle for defining the extraordinary. Yeah, but his steampunk stuff but, uh, was... But, Taking it, steampunk stuff and making it fantastical. Here it's taking emerging virtual reality technology and describing it in detail. And making it relatable. I don't know. I don't know. And you got to remember, this was written in 2011. Okay. Well, all right. I'll give you that. Um, and a, lot of, a lot of the dynamicism in user interfaces was still very theoretical. That's true. But, it's, but to it, me... It is written towards someone who doesn't understand has no framework in virtual reality and in that sense i'd understand who his audience was for the book so but so again to me it's 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 him he's writing for him yeah. and what and what he understood or envisioned it to be and uh, you know it may be anachronistic it may be uh even iconoclastic but it's still very effective in creating a relatable theater that you can see yourself doing those actions there's a trope in science fiction there's a trope in science fiction where they will describe a thing, and you know what that thing is, but the character doesn't know that thing. And they'd be like, you know, it's, you know, 
it's re- it's it's cylindrical and it tapers and it has a red packaging and it says something like cocky on it and it contains sugary liquid that makes my delicious rum and cokes but it's a magical mystery thing that the gods have sent down and then you as a reader is like it's fucking a can of coke or a bottle of coke that's one thing mm-hmm. where it's it, it's specifically intended to be describe it from an alien perspective the aborigines right but in his sense he's he's writing to an audience that is sophisticated and then he's describing something not in an abstract but in a very practical fundamental way and that and that part i just don't quite understand why he does it and maybe you and i will differ on that i just don't i, don't I, I, find, it, but, I find it i find it i find it a relatable construct that creates some pinning of a phenomenon that then allows you to launch from there right and i and i, and I don't get i don't get bogged down on it right because Oh lordy! Like in the Quicksilver, it, yeah, I know, yeah, right? In right. the Baroque cycle, right, right? You, you Magical get, abacus, yeah, yeah. And then an anathem. I mean, oh my God! Just brace yourselves for impact. Well, the, but, uh, but 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 consider but consider though, Seven Eves. Okay, in Seven Eves, they describe. In sometimes he 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 gets really deep into what Dinah's doing. Remember, I mean, the first some percentage of the book, he describes in detail. The Dinah's manipulating robots, and he, she's ta- he's talking about what she's doing. At some point, he basically says she threw some code at it, and it did a thing. That is an abstract that is universal. If you say she threw a code at it, and it did a thing, that divorces yourself from the interface. But when he says she typed in the keyboard that she's going to run a Pascal script, and it's going to do a thing, and it's going to tell the robot to look at what the other robot does, the deeper he dives into that, the more... He's time stamping it, and you're saying time stamping is a virtue, and I'm saying it's less of a virtue because it it dates the material in a way that makes other readers, general readers, this wide variety of readers of this material, feel like it's grounding it in a way that he doesn't intend it. But I don't know. You're saying he does intend that. I I, I guarantee you he intends it. I guarantee you he intends it very deliberately. So a he, lot. I I would say that he's not. He's not one just to go into prose for the sake of prose, NFM notwithstanding, right? Um, uh, yeah. But but I would say that that there's a very deliberate methodology to everything that he does, and he. Uh, you know, I would say that's true. I just don't know right? if I, I don't know if I agree with the approach, but I understand what you're saying. Now, keeping in mind, no, no, these are criticisms just, on a book I love to death. I'm just saying. No, it's just that you would write it differently. You yeah. would write it differently. And I'm right? coming and, at it from the perspective of someone who writes. So I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah, it, it's it's highly subjective, and that's the thing but, but, that I love about his work is that it's so it's so engrossing to someone who creates, right? Like me as a creator, I love reading what he does or listening to what he, <laughs> listening to what he wrote about what he does, and I love that I'm in a, in a position where I can be picking at little things and be like, I would have done this this way. But here's the other thing: no one, I didn't sit down and write this whole fucking opus, right? So. Like all things, it's really easy to backpick. It's not, you know, it's not easy. It's to easy create. to be a critic. It's really easy to be a critic, right? So I want to yeah. swerve a little bit and talk a little, yeah. uh, talk about my experience listening to this book. Okay, so uh, I don't have. But first the of all, name. Who, who narrated? Who narrated? Yeah. It? yeah. So let me. I will look it up because it's important. I want to talk about this because it's going to affect everything we talk about. Audible and Rindy. Do not autocorrect me, you son of a bitch. All right. So the whole 
So a fundamental premise in an audiobook. It's not your half asleep. Is that it's audio? Is that it's audio? Yeah, it's not your half asleep dad reading to you before you fall asleep. It has evolved from the earliest audio because remember when you would talk about how you're, you should re- read audiobooks or listen to audiobooks, and I'm like, ah, it's hor- it's garbage. I don't like it. I listened to an audio interpretation of some book in like 1995. It's not the same. Okay, these are incredibly sophisticated narrators. There are voice actors who have a lot to do in you know in this task. So, for example, this particular narrator. Orimdi had to narrate female voices and male voices. He had to narrate different American affects. He had to narrate Russian. He had to narrate Chinese and, and some and some some Tagalog, some uh, uh, British, and a bunch of other stuff. And also, the key is he's not like going like, "Well, oh, so the girl says," you know, he's like. It's. A, I told you this earlier. I was fascinated by the fact that when he reads the dialogue from a female character, he just up pitches just a little bit. It's still his voice, but it's just a little up, right? And when he brings in an accent, he brings the accent in, but it's not really overt. It's just subtle enough. And I have to so say, it's a lilt. It's a lilt. It's a lilt. It, this it's a lilt. is this has been my favorite of all the audiobooks I've read so far. He was my favorite. So. This was, let me see, I just had it. His name is Malcolm Hillgardner, okay? So he comes at it with the voice. His default voice is like the guy, do you remember the guy that was the attorney in like, uh, I feel like he was the attorney. He was he was involved in like How I Met Your Mother and a bunch of other stuff. He's the guy that you imagine in sitcoms. I don't know anything about How I Met Your Mother. All right. Well, he's got this like attorney voice, right? But he's so good. He's so good. Mr. Anderson. Yeah, he's good. He's very good about the subtlety. I thought it was really interesting because as I read on and listened to other or listened on and listened to other narrators, you see the differences in their approach, right? So I think that he is by far the most successful of the ones I've listened to. Malcolm Hillgardner. Okay. So he... When he's going to do a different ethnicity, he does a slight tick. And when he does a, a different, uh, you know, different gender, it's just a little bit of a pitch thing. But it's very subtle and it's very consistent. And what's important about that is he's so consistent that you allow that, right? If he was one of those like what, like uh, like Robin Williams style, where he's doing impressions, he's all of a sudden going to be jumping way out of character, right? Or, no, I should say he's jumping into new characters. And then it would be more obvious, right? So Robin Williams, when he does a female character or a black character or an Arab character, he's stylizing to the point where it's Robin Williams doing that, right? Yep. This guy was very subtle so that you easily picked up the differences, but you didn't. You never felt the verisimilitude being broken. You never felt like you were hearing a, a, a reader doing accents, you felt like you were hearing the different voices. And I yeah. thought that was incredibly sophisticated what he did. Easily the best of all the ones I've listened to. Now that said, this being the first of four now, I was mm-hmm. really interested in the mispronunciations and the <laughs> and the regional changes, right? So for example, 
he clearly said rush and confusion instead of Russian confusion. <laughs> and I was trying to imagine the process by which this guy, you know, reads all this dialogue. And then is there some editor that listens to it? So I could hear rush and confusion, not Russian confusion. Right. But no one ever caught that and had him rewrite, read, uh, you know, narrate it. The other thing was, and I was waiting for it as soon as Abdullah Jones was introduced, there was the moment where Hill Gardner was going to have to do the word and he had to do it and he dove he in. I was like, Oh my God. And because, and, and, and so once again, so uh, begin again, Blake Simmons and I are as white as the, as white as the surface of the, 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 the white sky know, burning I'm, I'm... sun of seven eaves. I was waiting for you. I wonder where you're going to go with that. That was, a... listen, it, it was, I was waiting for it. I was like gripping my hand, my, my, my steering wheel. I was ready to swerve into the Island. And then he did it. He used the N word. <laughs> and I imagined him sitting in that little booth or, or frankly, at this point, he's probably in his home office. Like we are like you are. And he's saying that probably said it a couple times, asked his wife or husband, do you think that sounded good? Do you, that sounded reasonable? You know, it's tough. Can you imagine having to do that? How do you imagine being a, a, a white, uh, voice actor having to use the N word. It's really, really fucking challenging because there's no way out. Of that. Uh, I just personified Leonardo DiCaprio yes. in Django Unchained. Yes. And just, you you and personify him go. many times. You often personify go. him. Yes. So yeah. that was a thing. Another one less uh, controversial is. So anyway, the point is uh, Abdullah Jones is a Welsh born African rooted individual who is now a jihadist and he uses the n-word in a couple of ways and in hill Gardner has to say it <laughs> he does a good job yeah. but it's 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 flinchy anyway so the other one was um a couple other things he he pronounces the word uh uh interlocutor how would you say that interlocutor no interlocutor interesting so my uh my uh that's a upbringing. English. That, that's how it's pronounced okay so my upbringing is is more book reading than oral right so there's a lot of words like primer for example or primer i grew up thinking it was primer it's primer right uh plebeian no i still think, I still think it's primer okay i still think it's primer plebeian and plebe plebeian right so there's a lot of words that i read growing up that i never heard said right so it's interesting that he says i don't does he say interlocutor? Maybe like you? I I don't know. But every time he said that word, it reminded me that Stevenson uses that word a lot because he said it like yeah. six times in one book. Right? So <laughs> he was really into that word. Another one that was, I, I honestly think it was just a, he just blew past it and no one caught it, was he said uh, ogle. He said og, it was ogle versus ogle, right? He says ogle instead of ogle. And I don't know if that's a regional thing. But anyone I've ever known, be. everyone I've ever known who's been in ogling a I'm bar ogling. watching Peter Murphy play was ogling him, not ogling him. So I thought that was uh, it strange. Depends. It depends if you're in, if you're in uh, Northumberland or Southampton. All right, uh, it makes a difference. All right, so if you're going to go England on it, explain this to me. He pronounced scone as scone. When it should have been scone because he was talking in Olivia's voice and he said scone. So immediately I hit the brakes in traffic, almost caused it to pile up. I said, This is fucking outrageous. This will not stand. You cross this line, you will not. 
He said, I can't believe I can't scone. believe I recommended you to do audiobooks so you could do <laughs> my favorite line in the entire book you know, was you're putting yourself in an Iron Maiden, my friend. I know, I love it. I love it. Iron Maiden. Put them in the Iron Maiden. Excellent. Execute them. Focus. All right. So the other one I really loved this is my favorite line that he used, which was I burn through species like a rap star. I love that line. And he uses it like twice. He very he like tweaks it a little bit. But ever since I read that, I was just, everything I do, I'm like, I'm burning through species like a rap star. Like I'm getting a coffee. <laughs> I love it. Um, he makes a reference to some in, this is Stevenson now, not the narrator, but he he writes submarine submachine gun, which is very anachronistic, right? SMG is the you know. So come on, I mean, th- th- but that's what he does. It's a Tommy machine gun, right? It's a submachine gun. Submachine gun, SMG. Also, he says Heckler and Koch, not Heckler and Koch. Now, that was, I think that's regional. I don't know what that is, but he said that, and I hit the brakes, and I did a bootleg swerve through three lanes of traffic, and I said, it's Koch. <laughs> yes. Everybody in the field doesn't even pronounce the, the real thing. It's just H and K. Yeah, I think just, it was uh, very interesting, though, also, that while I was reading this, that... um cryptocurrency was having the cock huge, brothers the cock brothers the like cock yeah. brothers uh cryptocurrency was having a huge uh attack right when i was reading this book right so <laughs> there was this huge thing From twenty thousand to four thousand yes yeah. uh bitcoin plummeted while i was reading this book and this whole thing about the next generation chips had you know made it so that the whole mechanism behind cryptocurrency and the infrastructure by which they could you know, produces at a certain blockchain. rate had fallen apart. Blockchain. The whole blockchain thing had fallen apart. I thought that was amazing. So, okay. So here's the thing. I loved the, I loved the idea that he would make a virtual world, which would in turn link all these people in the real world, which is as abstract as a virtual world to anybody who hasn't spent their lifetime constantly crisscrossing the globe, right? Shaman is as, abstract and as ethereal to someone playing T-Rain in Des Moines as anything, right? So he uses T-Rain to make real-world geography seem abstract and to make the the mechanism of getting from place to place uh, making you think about it, which is something that's interesting because in games you go, oftentimes people use jump points, right? They go, I'm going to go to that point and they jump to it. Which T-Rain but allows. But T-Rain allows delay. that. But there was a delay. Right. Yeah. But there was a, there was a delay, right, when the forces were marching for the War of Realignment. And they actually had to go through a temporal state that bought the players in the real world time to go do what they needed to do. But the, but the thing right. was, that, that, he said was... he played with time in travel and T-Rain very specifically. He was making a mm-hmm. point about the logistical difficulty of getting from Southeast Asia to America and all the things that they would have to do and swimming and climbing on ships and doing all this weird shit. Meanwhile, swimming in Taiwan, swimming in Taiwan, right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, yes, but, but the thing, the thing that uh, was specific was fourth Rask gets kidnapped and his computer's still running. So everybody in T-Rain is watching God walking across the pacific ocean i just like randomly walking at walking speed and they're like he's walking and he's going to take 13 weeks to get to the next like whatever majestical compound and i thought that was very important because he's spent an inordinate amount of time talking about the logistics of travel 
And then in mm-hmm. T-Rain, the lack of logical travel was what cued people in that something was wrong. Why was God walking when God appears and reappears and does whatever he wants to do? Watch my hand. See, I go like this. Because God just got got kidnapped. Yeah. I think that was fucking amazing. That mechanism was really powerful to me. I was very aware of time, the mechanics of time and travel. Not just because I'm writing an amazing role-playing game that will be available soon that includes the mechanics of travel. Stay tuned, everyone, or your nearest available retail outlet. That's right. So God's checking in as a PDA. Do you still object to that? Do I object to God checking in via PDA? Yeah. How so? What do you no, mean? I'm just saying that you hate PDAs. Like the, the I don't hate PDAs. I hate that you define it as a PDA. Oh, come on. He didn't say interface device. He said a PDA, which is a very 90s. And terminal. Yeah. No, no. It's a very specific thing. It was a linguistic choice that he made that I didn't understand. Okay. PDA died with the Palm Pilot. That's it. As soon as they bridged cellular technology with the personal office assistant, it was a different thing. And he kept Neil it Neil Simpson thinks otherwise. Well, no, he thinks it's otherwise. It should have gone the other way. It's a beta VHS debate. Yeah, I understand. Well, speaking of which, speaking of which, Snow Crash coming up. All right, so before, so, okay, so, so, Reemdy, so, uh, do you have, so, okay, so do you have any other thoughts about some of the themes in the book or anything else you want to talk about? Because we've jumped all over the place, but. Powerful no, female character. Powerful female character who influences everything, even though she's a victim in a kidnapping, like ostensibly, right? If you read it in one way, she dodges um, all of the tropes that you would expect from a Hollywood thing. She's black. Right. She's an orphan. She's kidnapped. She's not. She doesn't seem to have agency. And then she yep. circumvents all those things. Right. It makes survivalists look romantic. Yes. Right. Even though that they're in Idaho at a. A camp that I'm pretty sure they did lots of weird stuff at. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. They they he makes a really strong case for a storm shelter. Right. And what I also what I also really like is the democratization of technology. Okay. That it doesn't matter what your background, right, and and where you're from. Literally, you're still a participant in this global technology scenario, and uh, your savvy and know how in understanding and manipulating that are intimately linked into your viability as a human i agree so let me ask you this right? does stevenson love technology or not i don't think i'm qualified to answer that question i think um i think you could easily convince yourself of either position abdullah jones was undermined by technology fourth rast was almost ruined by technology John Forthrast was killed literally by the technology that allowed him to to continue on after the Vietnam War. It's very specific. He was beaten to death by his own prosthetic limbs. Yeah. So yeah. there's a thing there that I feel like Stevenson is zeroing on on the precipice. Like you know, there uh, technology helps us, but at the same time, if it's run amok, if it, we're not entirely aware of what it can do, what's it, what its potential is. I think, I think, it can fuck us I up. think, I think if Remdy was the only book that you read by Neil Simonson, you yeah. can convince yourself of that position. How dare you? Seven Eves. I've listened to more than those books. <laughs> Seven Eves and, um, yeah, no, but you know what I'm saying though, in this particular book, 
technology both was the key to characters we cared about surviving. Zula's understanding about how routers worked. There's many cases where technology allowed characters to survive, and there's also many cases where technology hampered those characters. And it was about how the characters interpreted that and how they used it that made the difference, right? Yes, exactly. So to me, what Neil, Stevenson is saying, what Neil Stevenson is saying is that it's not the tool, it's the human. Mm-hmm. It's right? how and you so, use it, which is like the gun debate. So the guns, guns and right. Remedy are everywhere, right? Right. Right. And, and that's overt. I didn't really think about that, but it's very overt. Right. It, it's, it's not about the tool. It's about the human. And whether it's and the guns tool, or whether it's he, the computers or the gaming, the dangers of gaming and it leads to violence right. and all that stuff, it's right there in the book, right? And I would say it's more of a claim against the lack of ethics and morality in the world than anything else. That we've okay. lost, that we've lost some, some semblance of a human connection that makes it okay to do these things with these various tools. And so weaponization... Is another big part of it, right? Because right. you have you have the tech world that's being weaponized, and then you have just weapons being weaponized and going on killing things with the intelligence apparatus. So, to me, I think I think what Neil Stevenson is is a devoted humanist. I agree. I, I don't agree think with that. I don't think I don't think he's anti-technology. I don't think he's anti-anything. I think he's pro-human. The shit we do has be... consequences, right? Yeah, and and once we lose the humanity, then all the rest becomes moot and 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 movable. I agree with you. Yep. You and I are in alignment. Yep. Unlike most of the characters in Reemdee. <laughs> so let me ask you this. When you were reading Reemdee or rereading it or listening to it, did you cast any of these characters? Did you imagine – you imagine everyone as Angelina Jolie. I know you did. No, I, I did know not. You no, did. I did not. No, I did not. No, I did not. So actually it's a very interesting thing that you bring up because yes. to me, Dodge – Yes. Kurt Russell. I always think. Yes, me too. Like, yes, totally, <laughs> totally, totally, and right. not the and not the like uh, Chris Pratt imitating him in Lego Two. No, like just no, legit no. old Straight school up. Kurt Russell. Totally, absolutely, right? absolutely, yes. And uh, so for um, Abdullah Jones, I actually had a very I had an epiphany because I was watching American Gods, mm-hmm. um, and there's a cast character there. That was just stunningly exactly what I expected. Um, Abdullah Jones, Orlando Jones, Orlando Jones. Okay, so yeah. we, you and I are very close. So you know who I cast as Abdullah Jones is. Do you, you've seen some Luke Cage, right? The original oh, yeah. one. Think of the guy that's in the barbershop with him, the older guy with the long beard. Oh yeah, Fair. that's who I saw as Abdullah Jones. Uh, I was also. Richard Forthrast, I was right on there with you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, John Forthrast, I had as John Goodman. <laughs> uh, Jake, Forthra- Jake Forthrast, cross this line, you will not. Orientals, dude. Uh, and then Jake Forthrast, I had as Jeremy Davies. Nice. With a big beard. See, I, w- I would have gone Christian Glover. Okay. okay. Here's the big one. Uh, Zula. Because Eritreans oh. are a wide range of uh, it's kind of skin colors and uh, physiological body types and everything else. Yeah. But what did you think? I I was actually so it depends on the the age and the genre because have you been watching The Passage? No, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, so there's a character in there that um, I thought would be her. Um, Who is that? I gotta look it up. I'm not. I'm old. Yes. 
Uh, Carolyn Chikazia. Who's that? What's she been in? She's a, well, she is a Nigerian actress Mm -hmm. um, playing Sasha Williams in As If. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she's also doing uh, some pretty great things in uh, The Passage. She's the head surgeon there, doctor there. So that's who I would have picked. So I landed, so it was tough. It was tough. But I landed on uh, Zazie Beats. No, yeah, it was a really good call. Uh, I wanted kinky hair, but I wanted like a mixed sort of yeah. sort of background. Olivia, I hadn't nailed down. I had some ideas in my head, but I wasn't sure. Uh, Changor, I oh man, I have this mental image of him, but I don't have an actor that goes with it. Pablo Mark- Schreiber, Leave Schreiber's brother. Oh, what's he in? Pablo Schreiber. He's so he's an American god. He plays a leprechaun. Hmm. That's who I had down. And then um, Peter for me was Bruce Langley. Who's that? Or you gotta look him up, okay. Bruce Langley. Hold on. He he's a phenomenal dweeb that looks like a knee biter every role he's in. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Peter. What was it? Now, what's his name? It is uh, Bruce Langley. Bruce. I'm not looking this up on Google Earth, you guys. And and published Friday, uh, you gotta look at him. Yeah. What Bruce Langley? What did yes. oh, okay in America? For Peter. Okay. Peter. All right. All right. Okay. Um for me, uh so the next one was Yushua. I had a Yusha, rather, I had his Aquafina. So That's because a good call. she's Hakka. That is a good call. She's Hakka, yeah. so she's got more uh what the Chinese would consider ethnic features, right? Yeah. Um so Abdullah Jones we talked about. Uh so Ivanov, have you seen Barry on HBO? Yes. God damn it. You've seen it, right? Think yeah. of the guy that was running the Russian organization before he got killed. Okay. <laughs> Barry Glenn Fleshler. That's the guy. That's the guy I saw as Ivanov instantly. I mean, it's hard not to because that was so perfectly Russian. That whole thing was amazing. Um, and to think that that guy I'm, that's. I'm going to go one more on you. Jamie McShane. Who's that? Take a look at Jamie McShane. So he just looks like a terrorist. He's um, <laughs> he yeah, looks he, like a terrorist. Okay, he, he was on Sons. Of, you have been nominated to the Department of the Interior. <laughs> he's Sons of Anarchy, Southland, and Bloodline. So Sons of Anarchy is really good in Jamie McShane. Jamie, hold on, Jamie. Shane. I'm just thinking in my mind, McShane. I'm not looking this up on the computer at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Jamie Mc. So Jamie Son, McShane. Sons of Anarchy. Okay. Sons of Anarchy are like, okay. And, um, it's hard to imagine when you think of Barry that the one guy was uh, Victor Zaz in Gotham, the Jigsaw character, like the sort of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever the Alphabet Man. I love him and Barry so much. The younger guy, the bald guy, I love him. Okay, yeah. so it means nothing. So um, Ivanov, Gary, Barry Glenn Fleshler was Goran and Barry, Errol uh, Childress in True Detective as well. Uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, Sokolov, I landed on Daniel Craig. Imagine <laughs> Daniel Craig, because the first half of the book, first half of the book, I described him. Say with me, first half of the book, they just, you know, first half of the book, I'm imagining sort of dark hair, you know, and then at some point they describe that he has short cropped blonde hair, and I suddenly realized Daniel Craig wandering around with a scowl, 
if you didn't know he was, if you didn't say to him, that's a British guy, that's a 007, right? That's a MI6 agent. You'd be like, that's a Russian. That's a fucking Russian coming at you. And he's going to yeah. get you. Daniel Craig. So okay. cool. Right? I, th- I think that, that, that that's a reach for the movie, but yeah, no, I get it. Short, blonde hair, spetchnaz. What do, would you say? Daniel, oh, Ernest Borgnine. Give me a fucking break. Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, there we go. All right, let's talk. Okay, so let's go Chris back Selma. to the beginning. Let's <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to talk about Snowcrash. It is very important. Maharshala Ali. <laughs> Maharshala Ali. Is that what you're saying? You fucking I, racist again. Two in a row. Racist. Dude, look at you. Look at you. Look at you. I'm I'm pounding my fist. So Snow Crash. We gotta talk about Snow Crash. So I read that in nineteen eighty nine something, nineteen ninety. Uh and I couldn't get past it. And this is wonderful because we talk a lot about how our wives fall asleep in movies, right? We always have said, Tell me the story of two thousand one and they're like, Well, it's bo- it's monkeys throwing bones around or tell me the story about <laughs> matrix and it's a guy in an office park right your both of our wives fall asleep in the first 11 minutes of a movie so snow crash apparently i fell asleep in the first 11 minutes of it <laughs> because there's matrix, nothing about matrix, hold, on, hold on hold on hold on matrix did not have the spark in it that was transformed <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, you you techno racist. All I'm I saying can't... is techno racist. <laughs> techno racist. All I'm saying is that the snow crash that I remember from my high school experience when I was very pro. It was not what you read. Not yeah, what you read. My pro Gibson. I read Gibson first, right? I, I I read this fairly practical reality version of these stories. William Gibson was very material, right? And then I read Snow Crash, and I apparently I did not get very far into it because I told you before that I am admitting this. I told you before that my impression of snow crash was dickhead delivering pizzas in a pool. That means that I read two fucking chapters of snow no, crash. And you stopped, you stopped at page stopped 60 because you stopped at page 60. As, as I've read later, many critics believe that Stevenson was doing a parody of cyberpunk at the time I don't agree. I don't believe it either. But you're shaking your head furiously while popcorn flies out of your mouth. The point is, at the time, <laughs> I was offended. I was like, that's like bad role-playing game, Cyberpunk. Don't like it. Stop. And there's so much fucking more to that book than that. The The it, concept of him being a samurai sword-wielding, sports car-driving, pizza delivery guy is the absolute premise to the fallacy of his world. That he exactly. was exacerbating the hero prototype in hero protagonist. I mean, that was his whole thing. He was making these absolutes. And I yes. didn't see that at the time because I got too in and stopped. Well, but I mean, you, I mean, you're a Gibson fan. So you, right. you judge everything with that filter. And so then everything's derivative, right? Yes. yes. But Snow Crash to me, is one of the most enjoyable sci-fi novels I have ever read. It was really right. fun to reread. Right. Now, listen, so with regards I to audiobooks... Off a short pier. Remember that? Like, yes. And, and the fact that they drive people insane by putting nonstop advertising into their retinal implants and it's like you just eat a bullet so you don't have to see another Slim Jim commercial. There's, uh, a, there's some really interesting <laughs> parallels of viruses in that. Yeah. Listening to this as an audiobook, though, it was one of the first audiobooks that Audible... It was in the first wave that they commissioned. 
And the guy that they used, I don't remember his name, he he's done a lot of voice acting, but his his general affect is like here protagonist joint, you know, he enters the streetscape and sees a samurai. You know, like he has this like higher pitch, uh breathy, pulpy sound to him. That's Horsense strike Horsense one. Poughkeepsie. Horsense Poughkeepsie. Strike one. Because yeah. remember, I'm coming off of what's his name from Reemdy. And I'm like, that's the fucking benchmark, right? That's the gold standard. That's the Plato's cave of narrative. And then you get this guy and he's like, it's like Plato's 1990. Thank you. I haven't heard Plato's cave for like 20 years. Thank you. That's, well, uh... <laughs> you and I know what that means. So here's the thing. He comes on and he's like, yeah, here <laughs> hero throws his shit into the pool and so i'm like on fuck and then also it's like i'm hearing valley in his in his natural reading voice i'm irritated now that's not his natural voice if you read the if you read the biography of the voice actor it's not like he came to that conclusion but that's not what he grew up talking like so anyway so the other thing was uh and i i only i've only read like three or four of these or listened to three or four of these books but this is the only one where the producers decided to put sound effects. Oh, and I'm not no. talking about pew-pews, you know, when the lasers come. Every chapter break had this melange of, twice I've said melange, it had this little mix of babble combined with 90s era sci-fi stuff. Like, wow. And then you hear the people doing their babble muttering and then and then it would be cut new scene so yeah, babylon 5 everything babylon 5 soundtrack yeah everything in all these audiobooks has been it's very hard to navigate when the writer does those little paragraph breaks and it's a new scene versus a chapter break right like as a writer i'm listening to this thinking i can't tell when it's a chapter break or a narrative break whole you know did the scene change whole chapter change and so in each of these books that's been a challenge but in this book it's a particularly irritated because be like hero look down at the avatar and it had a a face of white static you know and then dingus jumped on her skateboard and you're like what the fuck just happened which she wasn't there which of you comes on yeah i know three jane's (laughs) how many jane's so uh anyway so it took me a while to get used to his style but part of what worked, though, and it's an accident, right? So this is an old recording as far as Audible is concerned, right? But because mm-hmm. the the hero protagonist storyline and the whole narrative of Snow Crash is about being super cool where you've coded it, you know, his like sort of like eh, sound to his narrative it sort of worked in that way, right? And it sort of gets the a lizard little... King, the Lizard King worked in the lizard world. It did. It it, yeah. it it gets a little choppy when he's talking, you know, clay tablets. But it, it, you know, overall, it it sort of made sense. So, but how did they do? How did he do the uh, mafioso? Right? He, no, no, he did an amazing here, Italian. Yeah? He did an yeah. amazing Jersey Italian accent. So, <laughs> what's his name? So I don't remember the characters, and I'm not looking it up. But what's the senior yeah, senior Nostra Costa guy? Neo or something like no, that. It, it, but, but but it's like it, I, I want I'm going to say something wrong here, but it's like uh, it Adanucci pizzeria. Yeah, who does? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a Catamonte, so I can say this. But so anyway, I yeah. really found this book um, uh, deeply 
engrossing compared to when I was in high school. And keeping in mind that yeah. I read uh, William Gibson and Sterling and a few others, Walter John Williams, and I would just go deep dive under the bleachers, just yeah, rolling Sherry, around. Cherry Cthulhu. Yeah, just, whole, uh, just fetal position rolling around, going, you know, cyberspace. <laughs> joy, 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 joy. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, you know, Gibson gets all this credit for, for naming cyberspace, but Stevenson named the Avatar. And, you know, yeah. there's a lot there. I loved the... So... There's no way in less than six hours we can describe the plot of Snow Crash, but ultimately it's no, no, just, 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 cyberspace. Yeah, just... It's a future world. Everyone goes into cyberspace to live their best lives. Hero protagonist is the best ever, and he got in there early as a hacker, so he's got the super mm-hmm. super rad guy, and he lives in a hacker compound full of other hackers, and they're uh, super impenetrable and arrogant and overconfident, and they think nothing can touch them. And then someone in an avatar shows up and delivers a virus and kills the main guy that's managing the thing. And it bleeds into the real world where there is this incredible flotilla that's been created by this oil tycoon who bought a bunch of telecom companies and has created this. The Kong Bucks. Don't forget about Kong Bucks. Kong Bucks. And he's created this whole world where he's fascinated by language. And he's used marketing and everything else, and he's manipulating what people see and hear. And he created this flotilla of boats that's just Uncle kinda... Enzo. Uncle Enzo. Uncle en... No, Uncle Enzo was the mafia guy. The this mafia is, boss, uh, right? This is, uh, what's his name? Come on, Google it. Dayfied. Uh, huh? David? No, uh, David is the guy that. David is the hacker that corrupted. This is. Uh... Bob Rife. Bob Rife. Which was fascinating. Reverend Wayne's now, Reverend listen, Wayne's Pearly Gates. Reverend should, Wayne's Pearly Gates and yeah. a media magnate named L. All Bob right. Wright. We should stop here and say if you are someone of a religious inclination, you will be Don't read this fairly book. offended by this book because Stevenson's uh proposal is that uh modern religion is a secular construct to manipulate people, which many and more importantly atheists more, believe. <laughs> so and more importantly Sumerian culture and mm-hmm. Sumerian religion uh, led to the development of other less little languages that gave origin to the Babel myth, right? This is amazing. Oh. So, okay, so this book is like two parts, right? One part is interesting near-future sci-fi, cyberpunk stuff. And the other part is deep PhD-level language theory. Mm-hmm. And he was young enough in his career that he couldn't... And this is my main criticism of this book read in 2018 late is that he was primitive enough in his style that he couldn't merge the two more seamlessly because this book goes cyberpunk, whatever, this is the world. And then all of a sudden the main character sits into an alternate universe. He sits into his cyberspace and he conjures up a librarian, which is like the, mm-hmm. the ask Jeeves of Wreck-It Ralph two <laughs> and says, Tell me about deep language theory. And then the fucking avatar spits out all the fucking research that the other characters did to him. And then he says, hmm, seriously, so what I would propose is X. Yes. And then they respond. And it's this, it's like if you've ever read any Buddhist stuff, if you've ever read any literature that they all send out, it's like student and teacher. Student asks a question. Teacher responds with a five-paragraph essay. Student asks a question. 
teacher responds with the essay again. That's how this read. For the time period, it's amazing, profound material. But reading it today, you're like, oh, dude, you could have phased into that. You could have eased into that and made it much more uh, palatable. So to me, there was a real jump between the theoretical and the practical in his story. Mm-hmm. That said, super and fucking Raven. fun. And, and Raven. Raven. So, okay. And uh, Ratkins. Culture medium for a medium culture. He says that. I fucking loved it. That's like Nectic <laughs> 2 material, right? I loved it. So he, he predicted so many things in that book. He predicted uh, the inflatable collar vest for when you're riding a bike, mm-hmm. right? That's a thing that the like Norwegians mm-hmm. or someone had come up with. And rat uh, things. Don't rat things. Rat you things. I was kind of, I was frustrated that they kept calling them rats when it was clearly dogs. Like I understand because they're smaller, no, no. they were rats, but. But, no, but they were known as semi-autonomous guardian. It's rat things as a thing that he coined. I loved uh, it. Just, just, just like smart wheels. Right. Right. He fucking owned it. And I love that they were like constantly racing against their heat sink. Right. Like, like. Yeah. If I keep moving, I'm going to live. And if I stop moving, I'm going to overheat and explode. I loved it. Um, he, he had another quote that I love. Condensing fact from the vapor of nuance. If there's nothing that describes modern cyberpunk than that, <laughs> I don't even know. Exactly. But what, but so you, you touch upon the back with the Sumerian thing, but it's so, and he, and he's done this over and over and over again, that the mathematics of codes and language and how it structures into the human brain and what it resonates in terms of architecture, right? So that, to me, right, is another huge thing that he, he and he alone has really explored significantly, right? And then the, the interaction of that in a metaverse, right? I didn't how, like, I didn't like the, the hero is talking cool. to, I didn't like the hero is talking to a librarian reporting what Dante or whatever his name was, the previous guy was all his research i didn't like that part but i did like the ideas behind it so i feel like stevenson hadn't grown to figure out how to deliver his ideas in a more subtle way it was very in your face but i love the fact that they were that he was interpreting the idea that the battle myth was about breaking breaking language to subjugate and control the perception of information it was fascinating. Yeah. Everything, all of his concepts are brilliant in that book. I just think that they don't age as well as they could. Yeah. Well, and, and, but what about the whole time between uh, narcotics and mental susceptibility to influence? That is that was the, amazing. The physical thing with Snow Crash, right? I thought that was really well done. It was interesting that he would make that Snow Crash had to be delivered by virtual means and by physical means and uh-huh. you had to find a way to do both. So, uh, so I, I have many questions for you as mm. the master of all knowledge with snow crash. Mm. Okay. Uh, so did you not feel that snow crash read like Dianetics? No, I, I just felt no. like Dianetics was all. a science fiction all. book, science fiction. I, have you read Have you read Dianetics and L. Ron Hubbard lately? Of course not. But the point is, he <laughs> he uses a sci fi premise and then he just spouts philosophy, and there was not a very seamless ramp up to that. So in my in my listening, it made me feel like I was like, "Oh shit, I'm on for a ride about philosophy," whereas I felt like 
a more evolved Stevenson would have eased you into that in a way that the characters would have found that out organically. This was a one character having a cyber character explain to them and validate their theories. Yes, I believe everything you say, plus also X. But then, but, the, but wait, but the, so unlike Dianetics, right? The, yes. the flaw in all of that, the vulnerability in all of that, and the threat assessment associated with that was included as part of the novel. Dianetics had none of that. That was the, that was the god. That was the me god and that there's nothing wrong with it as long as it's all about me. So the, 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 there, there was no conflict between right and wrong in Dianetics other than the power of me versus the power of the other. In Snow Crash, it was more about where, where does humanity begin and end in the technological space? And then when you give yourself over to that, understanding that there are very real and dire consequences from that move. So to me, to me, to me, it was much more introspective about the human condition than than Dianetics, which is all about control over Ponzi the other. Schemes. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, I think Snow Crash was a lot about. I think it was interesting that the main female character was threading the needle. Right, she was a religious theologian who fell into this, rooted it to its source, and was saying. There's con there's content in both sides of it, right? Mm -hmm. So she was the ultimate agnostic in this story, right? She was like, this may or may not have some fundamental theological component to it, but there is some deeply rooted material that goes all the way back to the earliest sort of germs of human civilization and how oh, yeah. language works as a organizational tool. So I thought that was very interesting. She was not the, she didn't, she wasn't very easily categorized in that character, in that book. No, she even, was, even, even when she fell in with Raven, right? And then, yeah. and she had the, uh, the uh, vagina dentata. Uh, narcotic oh, you're, you're talking about, so you're talking about the, uh, the courier. I'm talking about Hero's former girlfriend who was oh, the okay. yeah, 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 researcher who went to the raft yeah. Yeah. and was deeply rerouted in this. And she was saying basically towards the third act, she was basically saying, all this is valid. It may or may not be religious, but it may or may not have a celestial origin, right, right, right. but it's yeah, fundamental. Yeah. So that's Juanita. Yeah, Juanita. So Juanita. Uh, also, uh, thinking a little bit more about the, thinking a little bit more about the, the nuance of the characters uh, sort of interacting with each other, I loved how they turned uh Enzo from being this sort of higher level mob boss. The, the Costa Nostra thing was amazing. Or what are they called? Pisa Nostra? What was they called in the book? Like this, they had a different name for it, but it was basically Pisa Nostra. Yeah. Sicilian mafia in the pizza business, in the delivery business. He, his personal, uh, his personality and that whole thing about the recruitment and, mm -hmm. The franchising and everything else was amazing. I loved it. I loved it. All that stuff about why would you be sent in to, to deliver this package when it's easy enough to do it from an autonomous means and all that other stuff. I love the fact that at the end of the book, in the final act, he's he is a principal player in some theoretical outcome to the story that he doesn't describe. It's Mm -hmm. Any, it's Enzo versus what's his name? The main bad guy, Mr. Lee. Mr. Huh? Lee. No, 
It's Enzo versus uh, the Inuit. Uh, Raven. Raven. Yeah. Right? And that, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. In the last chapter of their pairing, it was like he pulls out a blade and Raven pulls out his thing and he's like, I've been through shit. No, <laughs> As Bill no, Murray Ra- said, Raven I've been in the Ra- shit. Raven... Yeah, no, Ra- Raven has the blade. Right, that's the diamond blade, and Enzo has something out, some other like a switchblade or something, right? And he, yeah, he says, you know, like I've been through what Bill Murray calls the shit, and I'm ready for you. So what I found interesting about that was they left it, right? Stevenson left that, but they've already established that Raven is connected to a nuke. So like, what, what is the outcome of that story, right? No, no, he, but, he never even but, touches so, on it. That, that, yeah, no, they never talk about that, right? So the, yeah. That was kind of like uh, the mutually assured destruction option, yeah. right? And so that that is one of the things that is just left unhinged. That in an unhinged world, everything is possible. Yeah, I love that. Right. So, but in in, I in loved so, it. and so the anarcho capitalism, right? Hyperinflation, the fact that you got trillion dollar bills called Ed Mises, <laughs> right? And a quadrillion dollar note is called the Gipper, right? I think. Right, and everything's done in enclaves and protected communities, and the haves and the have-nots. So to me, that's like 21st century America. Like I, you yeah. could easily see that playing out in 2050 and beyond, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then the privatization of the military, right? Every, it, it, so there were some fundamental cyberpunk themes in this book, and some of the criticisms about it, or some of the discussions about this book in reviews talk about it as being a parody of cyberpunk but to me there's a lot of proto cyberpunk in here the enclaves the nation states the over franchising of everything the privatization everything was very cyberpunk i loved it i loved it and i loved the idea that the pizza delivery was a was a metaphor for having a standard in a world that had fractally fragmented right like they were Mm -hmm. like this was this this underworld infrastructure that had said we'll do a thing right because if you go back to you know 75 years of organized crime it's been all about 100 years of organized crime it's all about no matter what happens we're going to take care of you no matter what happens we're your security security stability right and so you you distill that into the time period in which he's writing this book and it's all about all of the propaganda at the time which is We'll get your pizza to you in 30 minutes. No matter what the fuck's happening yeah. in the world, no matter how many people are dying in Africa, we'll get you that pizza in 30 minutes. And so that was a metaphor that I really related to. I love the fact that the idea that the entirety of the Sicilian mob was building its infrastructure on pizza delivery just cracked me up. Yep. <laughs> also, as a cyberpunk nerd and a technical nerd, I was so into reason. Okay. Mm-hmm. The real the railgun with the, the <laughs> depleted uranium depleted uranium flechette ura- oh, fuck me the depleted uranium <laughs> flechettes and then has the heat sink that's floating around in the water I just everything about that was just so amazing it's a suitcase bomb but as a delivery system I loved it I loved it yeah so anyway uh, so snow crash you have to admit that it goes way philosophical. To the point yes. where you, to the point where you're on the, you're along for the ride, right? You're just like listening but, but, but to them describing like, it. But, but compared to what? No, no, you're right. Compared to yes. nothing. Compared to nothing. But but, 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 but based but, on today's but, standards, so, it could have been smoother. 
Absolutely, but I think what he's trying to get into, and again, you got to understand Neil's writing for himself, not for yeah. anybody else, right. is that he's going into how do these common language structures and how do these common archetypes about communication and stories and oral versus digital and analog versus digital communication really mean things in this new world where right. the humanity and technology are now becoming more the same. And so to me, you, you can take all the, the trappings of the plot and the ecosystem around it, but to me, the real resonant thing that stuck with me forever is that you know, culture isn't something you learn, it's something you, you it, it's hereditary, that right. even if you don't understand the words, you can still be influenced by them. And even if you don't comprehend what you're doing, it can still be a major player in the outcome of things far beyond your control. And and to me, that that is where Snow Crash is so inspirational, even though folks thought it wasn't, it thought it was anti-techno, thought it was sure. you know, everything you know, else. But I thought the that cyberpunk, was the cyberpunk, the cyberpunk literature world rebelled against it, right? He was yeah. like making fun of them. And he was parroting them and everything else. But you're right. I think that the, he, he latched onto a lot of themes that are very contemporary, right? Also, yeah. when you think about cyberpunk as punk, it was interesting, the arc of his skater girl. What was her name? Yeah. I don't know. Um, not white. Not is it YT? YT. Yeah. Her mom works for the FBI, right? Yes. Plugged into a computer recorded everything she says she's got all these little mechanisms for anti-rape and anti-detainment and all this stuff and she sort of was like this is lame and she's uh, burns through all this stuff that's super important and she's like whatever the fuck is lame and she she blows through it in a profound way she influences events that are very significant mm -hmm. but with that punker teen punker attitude where she's like well you know don't touch me. That whole thing where they try to lure her into the FBI compound or whatever it is, the Republic of the United States, or whatever, like office park that was U.S., right? Like that whole sequence was amazing. Her fighting her way out of an office park was peak cyberpunk for me, right? Because I can't even tell you how many hours I've played cyberpunk role playing where you're fighting your way out of an office park well, and you don't but, have a you don't have a skateboard. So, you know, but even even the raft, right? Yeah. Which is that huge collection of boats that's you know fleeing from Europe over to the United States? So just go with me on a leap here, right? Yes. This whole uh, anti-immigrant xenophobic thing about sure. the, the, the hordes it's and the, the, 90s. the caravans 90s. coming through, right? Yep. And and so the raft has this USS Enterprise at the core of it, the nuclear carrier coming over, right? And it's um to me. It's that perfect synopsis of technology uh, influencing everything, even to the politics and the technology interface, right? Yeah, right. So, I listen. I thought it was super profound. I think, in terms of a living document, it's dated somewhat in his choices, in his oh, absolutely. focus absolutely. on medium as opposed to idea. At the same time, he pushes forward on. Radical philosophy, which is PhD material, he could have seriously just sat down and written a paper on mm -hmm. his language theory, which was fucking fantastic. He didn't bridge that effectively to me. And also, he dove deep into very dated material. She hands off VHS tapes. 
And I, I just, you say that he's saying that it's an artifice. It is, it grounds the story, but I don't think that he was grounding snow crash in 1989. I think he was writing a near future and it just happened to be a delivery system he was accustomed to. And to me, one little tweak, sorry that I'm pushing on that, but yeah. one little tweak, one little tweak. And he makes the VHS tape into some sort of digital media device, whatever the fuck generic term you make. And it would have been much smoother for me. Every time he said things like VHS tape, I, I, I felt I stuck. Now on the, on the flip side, I really loved the idea that if you came into the net, via what general cyberpunk calls a data term, right? Mm-hmm. Like a phone booth that's a internet connection. If you came into it as a as a plebe, your avatar is this choppy black and white avatar. And then if you were like super luxe, you had this fully realized you know completely yeah. human avatar. I love that idea. I love the idea that the antagonist in the story was using cheap ass ways in to deliver maximum payload because Raven knew that someone like these guys in the compound would be fascinated by the idea that some carbon, you know, Mm -hmm. some basically Xerox, some blurry black and white character would have something interesting to say. They'd be like, what the fuck is that about? And they would approach it. If, if, if Raven came in with a fully realized avatar and tried to get entry into the compound, they wouldn't have let him in. But because it was a blurry black and white, super glitchy thing, they were like, what the fuck is that? Talk to and, him. And kind of like bring him in to look at it. So I guess I just go more on the Brazil camp. Yeah. Right? That that you have the sci-fi films that have like archaic, arcane, outdated technologies, yep. like superimposed with the ultra-modern. Yep. And that, that, to me, it comes down to style and affectation. And so yes. I get how you would do a different style and affectation to it. But I don't. I, I obviously don't get hung up on it. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm in a pos- I'm in a position to listen to this in 2019 with everything I've read and absorbed until now. Right. The fact that that book at that time still resonates is important. I mean, I didn't. I discounted it at the time, like we talked about listening to it today i'm like man there's a lot of really good shit i loved it to death i really really loved it narrator aside it was incredible so uh so anyway it was interesting to go from reindy which i thought was sort of peak stevenson subtlety and going to snow crash which is peak stevenson throwing the shit on the walls and seeing what sticks kind of thing but the most remarkable stories of the period did create a world of computers, of trips to outer space, of missiles, of a science-important culture. To those of us who remember the Golden Age, we are now living in a science fictional world. This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. Now look, if you're like me, you love robots, but at the same time you fear the inevitable takeover from the robotic overlords that will soon send us underground and then kill us mercilessly as we've seen in various movies and TV shows and whatnot. But here's what you can do in the short term. Well, we still have time to enjoy them. You can support 
third rail design lab by picking up one or both of the Wrong Robot illustrated volumes largely comprised of my illustrations of robots at work and at play with whimsy and determination, all drawn by hand, delightful. And here's the thing. For now, I can give you a book of me drawing robots. Eventually, the robots will probably have books in which they've drawn us. Most likely our corpses, but you, you see what I'm saying. Act now while we can and support Third Rail. See you at a convention or my website soon.